4.20 p.m. I am standing here at Wind River, near the location where the body of Teresa Banks was found. Diane, this case gives me a strange feeling. Not only has Special Agent Chester Desmond disappeared without a trace, but this is one of Cole's Blue Rose cases. The clues that were found by Special Agent Desmond and Agent Stanley have led to dead ends. The letter that was extracted from beneath the fingernail of Teresa Banks gives me the feeling that the killer will strike again. But like the song goes, who knows where or when. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. When this kind of fire starts, it is very hard to put out. The tender boughs of innocence burn first, and the wind rises, and then all goodness is in jeopardy. Part of the now playing David Lynch review series. I've got a surprise for you. Something interesting I would like to show you. Hosted by Stuart. He's got his own M.O. Modus operandi. Jacob. He's real. He's getting to know me now. And Arnie. I don't take drugs. Nicotine's a drug. Caffeine's a drug. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeakingPodcast.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. Bob, I want These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Your behavior is not funny. It's wasting the time of the federal government. I'm now ordering you to release all pertinent information concerning Teresa Banks, both while living and deceased. Listener discretion is advised. That's spooky. darkness of futures past the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds today we're discussing fire walk with me starring cheryl lee moira kelly david bowie chris isaac harry dean stanton all those big stars from the tv series (laughs) and ray wise and kyle mclaughlin directed by david lynch this is the great went but you can call me Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the co-host that the angels won't help. No. And why don't those angels help? Those are some bitchy angels. We got a lot to talk about. They've gone away. <laughs> Fire walk with me. This is the culmination. Now Playing listeners, if you haven't joined us over at NowPeakingPodcast.com. Good luck understanding this. And I see the download numbers. You haven't joined us over at nowpeakingpodcast.com. We will try to make this intelligible for people who haven't heard our discussion of 30 episodes of Twin Peaks. But really, 
This is the end of the road. Why should Ray Lynch didn't try to? (laughs) (laughs) I do wonder, if you hadn't seen the entire series, could this movie make a lick of sense? I know you won't care about this movie if you didn't watch the series, but would you even understand this movie if you didn't watch the series? I fortunately had the experience of watching it with someone that didn't even know what Twin Peaks was. So, yes... (laughs) I can speak to that. What? Who is this person? I have. Se- I should preface by saying I have seen this movie more than any other in theaters. Like you, probably it's what Star Wars, or <laughs> you know, some people it's Jurassic Park. For me, it's Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. I went four times. Wow! When it came out August twenty eighth, nineteen ninety two. Yeah, that's nothing compared to my like thirty two Phantom Menaces. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the one he likes the least. But my first time, the opening night, was my first weekend at my dorm. I had just started college, making new friends, and hey, everybody, I really want to go see this movie. And the person that agreed to go was a (laughs) girl from small town Alabama who was very Christian and had never heard of this series. Oh, no. (laughs) And uh, she had quite a visceral reaction. I was actually worried that we would have to cart her away in an ambulance (laughs) like Annie. Well, I remember, you know, I just watched this for the first time, again, maybe about 10 years ago when I watched Twin Peaks all the way through. I binge watched it and then went right into Firewalk with me. All I knew is that it wasn't going to wrap up Twin Peaks. That's what I had heard about it, that it was not a satisfying ending. I think I had a pretty visceral reaction to it as well that first time. It was a little different this time. Again, being able to talk through all these episodes and and really suss a lot of things out. It, It came off different. And I remember when this movie came out, I was getting ready to go into my freshman year of college, but I hadn't gone yet. I'd go like a week later. This was the last movie I saw, still living at home with my parents, and... I was in a Twin Peaks mode. I mean, when I moved into my dorm, I moved in before my roommate did. He came in to find a fire walk with me, 24 by 36 poster on the wall, a pot of coffee brewing. I had a micro cassette recorder and all the books on the bookshelf. So I was a Twin Peaks fan and I saw this and walked out going, well, that's something. And then on a weekend home, like two weeks later, I went back. I decided I wanted to revisit it a second time in theaters. But this is a movie I bought on VHS when I revisited Twin Peaks, summer of 93. I bought this used on VHS, watched it several times. I think I've seen it maybe a half dozen times now. I remember coming to like it, but I haven't seen it since 1993 until this review where I watched it twice. I watched David Lynch's cut, and then I watched... Q2's cut, Two? which is a three and a half hour fan edit by a guy named Q2 who took the 90 minutes of cutscenes, inserted most of them. He left three out and I wish he'd put two of them back in, but he did all the legwork, so I'm not going to bitch too much. So I've seen a really, really long cut, a mini series cut of this, and I saw the theatrical cut. Which is over two hours. Um, This isn't a short cut, this theatrical one. Yeah, it's an endurance test. I've never liked this movie. I've actually despised this movie. But you saw it four times in theaters. I needed to process it. The first time it was actually just, I can't enjoy this because I'm watching someone writhe in pain next to me. And then the second (laughs) time I went with other college people who claim to be fans 
and you know I want to see what that's like. I went home and I took my mom, who I'd watched the series with. She didn't like it. And then I ended up seeing it with my brother as well. And, you know, my mom and my brother were more diplomatic, but I've never known anyone that had a positive experience of it, watching it in its initial run. Many, many years later, I would run into David Lynch fans who would claim outrageous things, like... This is his best film ever. No, I've read that like critics have come around on this film and now yeah, this this is a great film, one one of his best, which okay. <laughs> With the Showtime revival, I'm seeing so many articles that are like the great reevaluation of Lynch's misunderstood masterpiece, Fire Walk With Me. So I was really really looking forward to reviewing this i mean as part of our lynch retrospective where we're watching every lynch film this is the perfect time to find a diamond in the rough and champion a masterpiece that was hated at the time right i've seen it seven times i'm not even gonna tease this i don't like it now i do feel like my curiosity this time this is the first time i've been able to watch it on Blu-ray with the 90 minutes of cutscenes, the so-called missing pieces. My curiosity has always been, was there a better movie in there? And it got cut out. I do feel like this movie, like many David Lynch movies, started off with a sprawling initial cut. And because they had to release it in American theaters, they got it down to, I think, two hours and 14 minutes. So I thought, well, maybe more is better. Although certainly when you watch those two hours and 14 minutes, it feels like five hours. Yes. I mean, how involved was the studio on this? It feels like, oh, Twin Peaks, that has a cult following. I mean, it was canceled from television. Why would they let him do this? Here's the deal. CB2000 is a French financial company. It's the Frenchie's fault. Yeah, well, they love Lynch in Europe much more, you know, and in general, I, you know, people take knocks at the French, but I do feel like culturally speaking, they are much more open and loving towards artists than Americans are. Americans are all about like entertainment and I want me to be pleased. In Europe, they're much more open to visual expression that is groundbreaking and new and they love Lynch. And the deal was, we're giving you $70 million for three films. You can do whatever you want with it, but put Ronnie Rocket away. That was what David Lynch (laughs) wanted to make, of course. No one wants Ronnie Rocket. (laughs) (laughs) But that was going to be a huge part of the budget. But part of this getting the money was, first, we need to cash in on Twin Peaks, which is still a rage in Europe. It may have failed in American ratings, but overseas, it is a phenomenon. People wanted answers. They wanted to see more of this. Give us the Twin Peaks movie, and then you have the rest of the money to do whatever. So he ended up using $10 million, I think. And yeah, disaster. Ended up making four. Big hit in some areas. Japan loved it. And uh, a few areas in, in Europe, it, it was a financial success. But I don't think they ever reclaimed that $10 million. And I think we should just, for the listeners who haven't joined us over at Now Peaking, give a little bit of background. I hope you did listen to the first episode of Now Peaking. It was free here on the Now Playing feed as well, where we discussed the pilot of Twin Peaks, which was released in Europe as a movie. And we went through that entire conversation But to try to summarize 30 episodes of Now Peaking into five sentences, 
Twin Peaks was a phenomenon, and then its ratings faltered, and then it was unceremoniously canceled by ABC. They had quite a finale. I, I really wish you would all listen to yesterday's conversation. I think it was a good one as we discussed David Lynch directing the finale, one of five episodes that he directed himself. But with the series canceled, he announced plans for a trilogy of Twin Peaks movies that would continue the story. And I think everybody's expectation when he announced a Twin Peaks movie was that it would pick up on the cliffhanger that season two ended on, where to spoil the entire Twin Peaks series, FBI agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan, went to Twin Peaks to investigate the murder of Laura Palmer. And what we're going to see in this movie is her murder. But in his the course of his investigation, he uncovered demons in a black lodge, including a long, stringy-haired roadie named Bob, who was possessing people. And it ended with Cooper himself possessed by an evil spirit. And that was the last shot of the show. And I think I wanted nothing more than that resolved. So it was a bit of a shock when I read that no... Lynch is going back. He loves Cheryl Lee, wants to work with her, wants to tell the story of Laura Palmer, not the story of Agent Cooper. It should also be said that he was very frustrated that ABC made him resolve the murder storyline at all. His plan for the whole series, whether it ran two years or 20, would be that you'd never know. That it would constantly be something people asked, but that the plots would really be about a small town with a whole lot of secrets. And this murdered 17-year-old homecoming queen was just the catalyst for learning about a whole lot of debaucherous behavior in a town of 50,000 people. And so when they made him resolve that midway through the second season, he checked out a lot. His co-creator, Mark Frost, took the reins. I think it's very telling. Mark Frost has an executive producer credit on this movie, but contributed nothing to the story at all, was not involved at all in this movie. This is pure Lynch mixed in with one of the producers and writers, Mark Ingalls, but not the other one, Harley Payton, who had been ostracized. Frost was off working on his own movie. It was already shot. It was already shot and done. He could have worked on it. That was the excuse. He didn't want to work on this because he didn't like it. Yes, that's what I read as well, is that his name's on it, but he didn't want any part of it. This is Lynch's story going back. And if you do get a chance, you can still hear our entire Twin Peaks series at nowpeakingpodcast.com. We have a big discussion. It goes throughout the entire series of how much of Frost and how much of Lynch make that series and i think we all came to the consensus that their agent did as well it's best when it's both of them working together i wonder how much of this is actually david lynch i did listen to the two of you review laura's secret diary on books and nachos and how much of the stories is is from that which his daughter wrote well you know arnie was the one to point out to me that uh lynch may never have read it okay i think that that's why ingles is here Ingalls is here to work in sort of the story supervisor role to try and keep as much continuity as possible with what's established. I was very disappointed when I found out what the plot of this movie was, that it wasn't picking up with the season two cliffhanger, but going back in time to look at Laura Palmer, because I always felt like we knew what happened to Laura Palmer. It was very well documented. All of the things were inferenced 
through all of the clues of the show. And then she had a lookalike cousin who basically repeated her fate 15 days later. We didn't need to see Laura Palmer die because we had seen that happen in Simulcrum with Maddie Ferguson. And so I just felt like there was no real good reason to go back and show us the things that they're going to show us in this movie. I came into it already hating the concept. And I didn't mind the concept, but yes, Jennifer Lynch said she didn't think her father read this. There's definitely some continuity errors in here that do not line up. We'll point out a couple of them as we go through. But I'll admit I was disappointed that we weren't going to find out about the cliffhanger. Still, it was Twin Peaks. It was David Lynch. I was there opening weekend. I was ready to receive whatever he was going to give, even if it wasn't going to quench the thirst I had. Although, we'll talk about it as we go through. There were some morsels for people like us who wanted season two to pick up. Heather Graham's going to show up who was a character from the end. I, I don't even know if you could call them morsels. They're very, very tiny, yeah. <laughs> but the biggest one is a cutscene that wasn't even revealed until a couple years ago. Like I said, there's a three and a half hour cut of this. What we know of is there's an hour and 40 minutes of cutscenes on an already two hour and 15 minute movie. I agree with you, Arnie. I was going to follow this wherever it went. I was despondent that the show had gotten canceled. I would have seen anything Twin Peaks related by fall 1992, but I had heard the rumors. I had heard the early reviews. Two years after winning the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, Lynch went back with a big premiere there, May 1992, and got the most scathing reviews of his life. Booed. The entire movie was booed. There were angry press conferences declaring, how dare you make this movie? In Lynch's defense, the movie that won him the Palme d'Or, Wild at Heart, also got booed. Only by Roger Ebert. But uh, yeah, I mean, who, who boos everything that David Lynch makes until Mulholland Drive? I had also read a couple of reviews, but I was never beholden to reviews. You know, I took them as indicators. If Entertainment Weekly, which was my go-to source back then, gave something a bad review, it still had a 30% chance that I'd like it. So I went in thinking that I would prove them wrong. <laughs> and I would argue, I don't have to like a movie to find it intriguing. I think there are many interesting disasters. There's plenty of movies I would happily watch again, knowing they're not good movies. My feeling is, a bad Twin Peaks is better than no Twin Peaks. Something I will revisit, I guess, as we get into it. I don't know, some of those mid-season two episodes were pretty bad. <laughs> I could have done without them. <laughs> I would have never cut any of those episodes, truth be told, even though I would call two of them flat-out bad. But this movie, Arnie, give them the plot. Is there one? That's kind of hard to do, Stuart. You say that so easily. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Good luck. A lot happens, but I am I really struggled with how much to include in this. So, all right, here's what I got. So, I mean, as I said, Firewalk With Me is the prequel to the TV series of Twin Peaks. And where that started with the question, who killed Laura Palmer? This movie is going to show you the last week of her life, including her murder at the hands of, and yes, we're going to spoil the hell out of Twin Peaks the series. So, spoiler alert. We're going to see her murder at the hands of her father, Leland Palmer, played by Ray Wise. And honestly, it's been 27 years, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling that anymore. We start a year before Laura's death. 
In the TV series, it was revealed that Laura's murderer was a serial killer who started with a blonde girl named Teresa Banks, who lived in southwest Washington. Her body was found with a piece of paper shoved under the ring finger. That paper had the letter T on it. Well, this movie is going to start with her death. And in flashbacks, we're going to find out why she was killed. Teresa was a prostitute who placed ads in Flesh World magazine alongside her friends Laura Palmer, again played by Cheryl Lee, and Ronette Pulaski, played by Phoebe Augustine, both girls reprising their role from the series. Well, it turns out Leland Palmer was a Flesh World reader and one of Teresa's Johns. But when Teresa figures out he's Laura's father, she tries to blackmail him, so he kills her. Her murder was investigated by the FBI, but not Dale Cooper as we were led to believe by the TV series. Instead, it's Agent Chester Desmond, played by Chris Isaac, and Sam Stanley, played by Kiefer Sutherland. But during the investigation, Desmond disappears and Special Agent Dale Cooper, Kyle McLaughlin reprising his role, is sent to investigate, but Desmond is never found. There's also another FBI agent, played by David Bowie. We'll talk about him. <laughs> but not Judy. <laughs> we then jump a year later and see Laura's life. She's trying to be a good friend to Bestie Donna, Moira Kelly taking over the role from Laura Flynn Boyle. And Laura's trying to do her homework, keep up with her Meals on Wheels program, but it's hard with her cocaine habit. She uses her boyfriend Bobby for drugs while cheating on him with Sullen James, but as I mentioned, she's a prostitute, so she's cheating on Bobby with lots of other people to get drug money, including local dealers Leo Johnson and Jacques Renault. In the midst of this debauchery, Laura is also plagued by visions of Bob, a long-haired creepy guy in a jean jacket played by Frank Silva. Bob is a supernatural spirit that has taken over the body of Leland Palmer, and Laura is just beginning to realize the man who's been raping her for years is her own dad. Things get more frenzied, Laura takes Donna out for a crazy night of drugs and sex, but then flips out when Donna gets roofied, and finally one night, Laura and Ronette go to Jacques' cabin for sex with the fat Canadian and Leo, but Laura was followed by her father, or Bob inhabiting her father who waits outside the cabin to ambush Jacques. When Leo leaves, Leland takes the two girls to a train car to rape and kill them. But an angel arrives to help Ronette, but not Laura, who is killed. Her father wraps her in plastic and sets her adrift in the water, and Ronette is left badly beaten but alive. And Laura's body floats out to be found in the TV series pilot as credits roll. Yeah, the TV series pilot, and boy, they make it loud and clear in the opening shot of this movie, we're not doing what we did on TV. This actually starts with television static, and then someone smashing the hell out of the TV set. A louder metaphor, Lynch could not be made. That message isn't too subtle, is it? I think that's playing to the back row. We're smashing televisions, whether it's his anger at ABC, or just saying, hey, on TV, we couldn't show you Laura's tits, so here we go. And I want to say, a lot of criticism for this movie gets written off. Because the people are like, well, the fans were mad that we did something different with it. That we didn't follow the quirky, more comforting vibe of the TV show. I want to insist. I'm very okay with an extreme, dark, blue velvet vision. The show really got very goofy in season two. So to course correct and go back towards that pilot or even beyond that pilot, 
I'm okay with. That's not why I don't like it. I'll say that is one of my criticisms of this. Once we get to Twin Peaks, we're going to spend a good, what, half hour or something in Deer Meadow. But when we get to Twin Peaks, I do miss that dichotomy between the light and the dark. That's something Lynch goes to over and over that... Almost no one from that television show is going to be here to provide that. Again, that humor is brought in by a lot of those side characters. I don't need the most embarrassing stuff with Dick Tremaine and that kind of stuff from the TV show. But man, this is just all around dark and overbearing to me. It is a very dark movie, but I'm not put off by the lack of the humor either. I think that a lot of times... When it was Lynch doing the humor, it did work for me in the pilot and in the other episodes. But by and large, the humor was really grating me, especially in season two of Twin Peaks. And if you're going to take it and distill it down to a two-hour movie, I don't know why Lynch bothered bringing back half the actors he did. I mean, there's so many cutscenes. And I've heard actors on other movies speak and say... I knew I was going to be on the cutting room floor because when I read the script, nothing I did was integral to the plot. And when you get in the editing room, you really take it down to story. So he brought back Ed and Nadine and Norma and so many other characters had moments, Andy and Hawk. And why would you even do that when you have to know that is not going to make the final cut? This was even before the day of DVD. These days, I'd say you film it because what you put in theaters is a placeholder until you get your real vision out on video. And Lynch, he's progressive. I actually like what he said in an interview where now people could take a four-hour movie because he said if you get a good sound system and a big screen then you have a better viewing experience at home than in the theater. It's not too many old filmmakers say that, but he's down with the home experience. He's down with the four-hour cut. But in 92, no. And yeah, to answer your question, we know this about Lynch at this point. He overshoots. The reason why he films all that stuff is because he films every idea that comes into his head. He wants to have it there. He likes the improvisation. He likes the experiment of it. He sees all of these actors and all of these things as colors, paint, something that he can apply to the canvas and who knows what the picture is going to look like. I do want to give this movie one big credit right here from the beginning, though. Its music is also darker. Angelo Badalamenti is back and some of the jaunty Twin Peaks themes. We're going to get a couple callbacks to classic Twin Peaks themes, but by and large, this is a kind of dark, somber jazz score in this movie, and I absolutely love it. It's totally different, but it's gotten a lot of play on my CD player in the 90s and my iPhone. I've been completely just re-listening to it on repeat for a few days since seeing this movie. A lot of these songs will appear in Julie Cruz's next album, her follow-up to Floating in the Night. I think it was called Visions of Love. It would come out the next year. But yeah, this was a soundtrack first. A lot of these songs, we knew it as... Twin Peaks songs before we knew them as Julie Cruz songs. Yeah, there's specifically one scene where I really dig the music, and I think that music's so important, they subtitle everyone during it, because <laughs> that's what you hear most of the time, and it's a really good piece. Yeah, it's called The Pink Room on the soundtrack. It's the opening credits to this show. I like that piece a lot, too. But I also like the bluesy stuff, and even The Black Dog Runs at Night. The Black Dog Runs at Night. I also, if you pick up that soundtrack, it has the Sycamore Tree song from the season two finale, too. Good soundtrack. Now can we give some non-compliments? 
I've got plenty of them and none more scathing than Chester Desmond's. I get that Kyle MacLachlan did not want to come back for this movie. There's a lot of people who were biting the hand that feed them. I mean, again, I talked about this on Now Peaking. These people really weren't all that famous. Piper Laurie was their biggest star. And you get them together, you put them on the cover of Rolling Stone, you give them an SNL episode, and now all these people are so Hollywood when they're asked to come back for the movie of the series that made them... They say no. And there's a lot of talk that they were bitter because Lynch didn't shepherd the series. They felt abandoned. They felt betrayed. But still, come on, McLaughlin. You you got Dune. You got Blue Velvet. Lynch made your career and you're saying no? Ugh. Well, he did end up saying yes. He is going to appear in the second segment of this. But it was intended, and I think it would be in keeping with some of the things in the autobiography, if he had actually been the one to come downstate to Deer Meadows and investigate Teresa's murder. Instead, we get the guy that was actually considered for Kyle MacLachlan's role in Blue Velvet. And thank God he didn't get it, because if he ever did, I would never recommend Blue Velvet. Yeah, I mean, Chris Isaac here. Look, there's stuff that I like in this first segment. Like, again, Lynch's style of humor. When we're introduced to Agent Chester Desmond, he's in North Dakota and what is this? Like prostitutes on a school bus? <laughs> like all the kids are crying. There's a couple of scantily clad women. They're <laughs> handcuffing the driver. Like the acting's awful, but I just love this setup. I looked in the credits and they are listed as prostitute one and prostitute two there. So yes, that is wonderful Lynchian humor. I find that to be funny. Chris Isaac. I mean, hey, he was in Silence of the Lambs. Remember his pivotal role there? <laughs> was he? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, he was part of a SWAT team and he would go on. He worked again. He got his own TV show. I am shocked that anyone would ever employ him after this horrible, unprofessional performance. Ironically, I think it was a Showtime series he had. Yeah, he is horrible in this movie. Every joke dies coming out of his mouth. He is really, really bad, but... I gotta give serious props to Kiefer Sutherland for not upstaging him. I mean, Kiefer's a good actor. He must know he's with a bad one and give a bad performance himself. But I had a huge <laughs> aha moment. I watched this movie. And then, like, the next night, I woke up in the middle of the night with insomnia and went, Oh my god! Do you remember in the pilot of Twin Peaks when Cooper needs forensics and he's talking to Diane on the tape and says... Give this to Albert. Don't give this to Sam. Albert's more on the ball. Kiefer Sutherland is Sam. I read that. I can't say that I remember that, but I, in doing research for this movie, I saw that they included that intentionally. They also shot a scene in which Cooper is really kind of surly to Sam back at the lab in Philadelphia, that there was some kind of weird rivalry between the two. And in the book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, it's mentioned that Sam was run out of the FBI and became a drunk. So I did wonder what happened to Sam. Like, we're going to find out that Desmond disappears at some point. Sam disappears. They don't give him a reason, though. I don't think he physically disappears. They just stop talking about him here. Terrible acting. <laughs> He's like the Albert in this one. He's the forensics guy. He's got this giant box he carries everywhere that looks like a film projector I'd use in second grade, but he uses it like a magnifying glass. And... 
he has to take the body back to Portland because apparently her arm was going numb and he wants to check for nerve damage on the corpse. Why does the FBI get called in here? We know Cooper gets called in for Laura because Ronette happened to cross state lines. She was another victim. So that's why they brought the FBI in because it was an interstate crime. Why is the FBI brought in for Teresa Banks' murder? Because it is a Blue Rose case. I don't know what that means, though. I think I know what it means. I don't know why it's presented the way it is, but when Sam and Chester meet at the airport with Gordon Cole, they are given all the information they need about the case through Lil, a woman whose every costume choice and body movement is code for something. Uh, Chet breaks it down on the ride up saying basically her sour face, she scrunches her face like Renee Zellweger, and that means they're going to have <laughs> problems with the local authorities. That is mean to Renee Zellweger. Pre and post-surgery, she does not deserve that. <laughs> Walking in place means they got to do a lot of leg work. Well, they go like to two other places. I don't know if it's a <laughs> lot. But anyway, most ominous of all is on her tailored dress, pinned a blue rose, something that Chester cannot tell Sam about. He doesn't have the clearance. But I'm going to speculate. Much of season two was about Project Blue Book. I think that the blue rose might have something to do with that. That is the only guess I had was Project Blue Book, Blue Rose. But why would they know that? I just, and again, if you're Stuart's friend that's from Alabama that's never seen Twin Peaks, like this would mean nothing. None of this would mean anything. I saw every episode of Twin Peaks and Lil the Dancer meant nothing. I'm going to say <laughs> of all the things in this movie, Lil the Dancer is the thing I hate most. I absolutely hate this entire contrivance. More than Chester? Yes, more than Chester. First of all, Lil the Dancer with her Annie Red Wig, and that's not a clue. They never talk about that Bozo the Clown hair being something. I mean, maybe that's her natural color. <laughs> God, that's nobody's natural <laughs> color. And that scrunched up ugly face and the silly dance. Oh my God. You know, in that fan edit that puts so much in, I wish they'd cut this out. But yes, later on, Cooper's going to show up for a cameo, is what I'll call it. Talk to Diane on a tape and say, This is one of. Cole's Blue Rose cases, so I do think Blue Rose may mean there's something supernatural at work or something else going on. Project Blue Book was specifically about messages from space and extraterrestrial forces. It's a real thing. Yes, and they go into a lot of that with the Secret History of Twin Peaks book. But here, the Blue Rose cases, I agree. How would they know this is supernatural? It's a body there that they have to investigate. And they investigate it for a full quarter of this movie. A <laughs> half an hour is going to be spent investigating the murder of Teresa Banks and dealing with local law enforcement and talking to diners. It's like... We talked in the season two finale about doppelgangers. This is like the evil Twin Peaks, right? Where you don't want to go to the diner and the police don't want you there. They have awful coffee. Yeah, the, this is no Harry S. Truman, the benevolent sheriff of Twin Peaks, the sheriff Cable who doesn't even want to see Desmond or Stanley. I mean, as someone who's watched Twin Peaks, this is all meaningful that, oh, this is like, yeah, the doppelganger of that TV show. Again, though, if if you don't know, I, I think a lot of this just doesn't mean anything. It's just it's full of jerks and bad coffee. And there's like a 10 minute fist fight between 
Chris Isaac and the sheriff if you watch those cut scenes too. So if you really want this to all g- come to a head, you can watch that scene. Yeah, Chris Isaac was a boxer before he was a singer. And so I think Lynch wanted to go with his natural gifts. God knows he's not a natural actor. And I just, again, every scene is killed by this performance here. His every line, every joke is ruined. There's nothing funny about these early scenes. I think what we would be enjoying about the anti-Twin Peaks, even if you didn't know Twin Peaks, would be the comedy. But these setups are horrible. When he makes him pour the coffee on his lap by asking him what the time is, horrible timing. I never knew that was even a joke until this watching. I've always wondered, why did you make him pour the coffee on himself? I never got that was supposed to be funny. And yes, I do blame Chris Isaac for that. And there's just weird indulgences by Lynch throughout this. I mean, I, I that's nothing new, but it, it just stands out here. Like when they go to Hap's Diner, the anti-double R, it seems like a very long scene about some guy trying to fix a lamp. I know Lynch has got something with electricity. That's going to be a line, even the set electricity, but just flashing lights. And that scene's trimmed, Jacob. It was longer. Oh, I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is that Lynch has free reign to really dwell. I mean, I think we actually get the M.O. explained by Harry Dean Stanton, who runs the trailer park where Teresa Banks was living for a month. She didn't live in Deer Meadows, but she was blowing through town and she had gotten a job as a waitress and she was living in this trailer park. And Carl Rod, as Stanton's character is named, says something to the effect of, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am. And I feel like that's what Lynch wanted to do. He didn't want to progress the Twin Peaks mythos, he wanted to marinate in it. And so what we're getting here is a lot of weirdness for weirdness sake. It's kind of everything that people, all his critics have said about him proving to be true. It seems cruel. It seems indulgent. And worst of all, it seems unfunny. Yeah, I did like a couple of lines. I liked when they were at Hap's Diner. I got to give it to Kiefer, though. Kiefer gets the funny lines. The waitress says, I don't take drugs. And he's like, nicotine's a drug. Caffeine's a drug. And when she calls him a toehead, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to start using that. It means you're blonde. Oh, it does? I just I just pictured it meaning an idiot. A toehead is a blonde? Never knew. Okay, now I'm not going to start using that. Well, you could say one and the same. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess that is the the stereotype, but... Stereotype, yeah. I will say the autopsy's pretty gruesome, though. Yeah, oh, they pull that fingernail back. Oh! Oh, uh, yeah, that, that makes the tweezers under the fingernail scene, which in Twin Peaks, the series, was already cringeworthy, so much tamer by comparison that they have to find the letter that way. Now, again, Cooper was supposed to be the one, or it was heavily inferred Cooper did all this investigation in the series. And the first draft of the script, it was all written for Cooper. And then basically what happened was the show got canceled in in May. The season finale aired in June. The script was written in July. And Kyle said no, so it was rewritten in August. And then he said, okay, I'll give you five days. And so they come up with this middle part for him. But they already had cast Isaac and was moving forward when he changed his mind. 
when they get to the trailer park, there's a couple key things. First of all, there's some woman at the doorway. I want to just say that is not Anne Ramsey from Goonies. I went looking for her. <laughs> I swore it was Anne Ramsey. I did too, but Anne Ramsey was dead by this point. So that is okay. not Anne Ramsey, but it really looks like her. Head smashed by a basketball already. All right. <laughs> and second, the big MacGuffin here is that a ring has been removed from Teresa's finger. And this ring is going to be our through line of the film, I guess. Yeah, this is something totally new. Even if you watched all the Twin Peaks, you have no idea about this ring. You're going to recognize the engraving on it of, of that owl hieroglyphic. But yeah, now there's a magical ring that... I don't know, makes you disappear or something? I'm not even sure what it does. Oh, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't overthink it. I think that once you wear it, you're fated for death and fated for doom. It is being marked. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. That owl is upside down. That is a sign of the Black Lodge where all the evil that haunts Twin Peaks resides. I never remember to think about that as upside down. I just figured the ring was facing a certain way. Wouldn't this be more interesting then to, to find out about maybe the Black Lodge expanding? Because I've always thought of that something tied to the town of Twin Peaks being in the Ghostwood Forest. Here now we're in Deer Meadow. This ring has somehow gotten somewhere. Like, I, again, I, I'm thinking Lord of the Rings with this ring just like traveling around with the will <laughs> of its own. But I, I find that a more interesting story and would be more ominous that, oh, like for a fan of the TV show, oh, that evil was actually spreading out and growing and, and it's something big now. Well, I think the way that it is traveling is through the power lines. Yeah, because we get a whole lot more electricity. <laughs> yeah, we have this moment in the trailer park uh, where Chet's walking around and we just see a shot of a pole. I think it's an electrical pole. Maybe it's a phone pole. Yeah, it's got the electrical meter on it that, you know, the meter readers would read to tell you how much you owe. Right. Okay. So, yeah, it's electricity. It's a it's a conduit. And we hear this, which we didn't mention yesterday, but was a sound made by one of the phantoms. It's an Indian yelp that I think signifies the approach of a spirit. I think that this ring, rather than fly there on the wings of an owl, I think it came down through the power lines. Teresa Banks' trailer certainly seems to be glowing with some kind of electricity when Chet returns to inspect it. What we see is a mound of dirt. And if you remember the pilot of Twin Peaks, when Laura's body was found in the train car where she was killed was a mound of dirt that had a locket on the top or half the heart necklace. And then the note, fire walk with me. Uh, case in point, we never see that happen here. We never see Leland make little dirt mounds. But here there's the little dirt mound under a trailer. There's the ring. Chester Desmond reaches for the ring. We cut away and he disappears. So did he disappear when he touched the ring? You're right. Now I am thinking Lord of the Rings. It's the ring of invisibility, <laughs> Jacob. He put the ring on and boom, he was attacked by ring wraiths, I guess. But we're going to find out later on when Cooper comes that the trailer the ring was under, it wasn't Teresa's trailer. It was the trailer of the Chalfonts. No, that's an empty lot. It is now, but that was where the ring was. Yeah, the trailer disappeared. Yeah, the ring was under the Chalfonts trailer, and that was an old woman and her grandson. They're not the Tremons. They're the. This is so confusing. Yeah, that was the Tremons in the series, but it's the Chalfonts here. Yeah, it's this. Okay, it's the same actress, right? Yes, it's Happy Gilmore's grandma. But here's the interesting thing: is 
Carl, played by Harry Dean Stanton, the guy who runs the trailer park. I know we said that, but I'm trying to keep all the people straight. He tells Cooper that the people who had the trailer before the old woman and her grandson were also named Chalfant. So remember how we saw the Tremons in that house and then they went back later and it was a different person named Treman? Mm, yeah. It's like the old lady and the grandson take the name of whoever was there before. And now we know what Stuart suspected, that those are some supernatural spirits and the ring was under their trailer for some reason. And is that still David Lynch's son under that creepy mask that he's wearing the whole time? Why didn't they want to show his face? Two try and explain for these poor people that may not have watched the show <laughs> good luck at some point in season two we find out that laura palmer was delivering meals on wheels to people in a neighborhood and one of them was this old woman and her grandson uh, the boy was played by david lynch's son now it's been recast with an actor who hasn't hit puberty yet i think lynch's kid had a growth spurt and it wouldn't have worked but yeah they're phantoms they are like many of the other characters the the little man in the red suit the giant we're going to see later the actual killer i think all of them come from this place whooping like indians coming down through power lines and possessing your body when you put on the ring. Another thing that happened in the series late into that season, the right hand would become paralyzed and tremble. And I do think that what they're trying to retcon here is that that is a sign of possession or putting on the ring. And we're going to see a lot of these weird creatures when we go to Philadelphia, a place I never expected this story to go, but we're going to go to the FBI office in Philadelphia where, you know, I never got from the TV series that Cole, Albert, and Cooper all worked in the same office together. That seems like they could have their own sitcom going, but they're going to be there. Cooper's doing some weird stuff with a security camera, all as a precursor for David Bowie to show up as another lost FBI agent. Robert Ingalls, the co-screenwriter, has talked about what they were doing here. And there are some deleted scenes that explain some of it, and then some of it I only got from his interview. But, well, here's what I can tell you about Philip Jeffries. He was an agent who was investigating something in Seattle. I think that he got wind of a ring and wanted to see the owner of it, who was Judy. And Judy is the sister of a character in Twin Peaks named Josie. She had a sister that was also in Twin Peaks? Okay. My head is hurting a little bit, but I'm going with you. <laughs> now, I saw the cutscene that has Jeffries in it. Wasn't he in Buenos Aires? Yes. He was trying to find Judy at a hotel named Palm Deluxe, in Buenos Aires in 1986. And that is when he vanished into thin air and it became part of this overall legend in the FBI of what happened to Philip Jeffries. And this gets solved here in 1988 in Philadelphia, thanks in part because Cooper had a dream, as he's wont to do. And in some of his best moments in the TV series, he figures out things by following his intuition and by going and doing what his dreams tell him to do. Here, his dreams tell him that if he runs fast enough out of the sight of a security camera, he will be able to see himself on the monitor in the next room. And he sees Jeffries walk past him. Now, if you're going with electricity, I guess, well, 
he's actually walking in the hallway because we see him come off an elevator. So it's not like he's generated by the camera. But when he gets into the office, Gordon Cole starts screaming because Gordon Cole is hard of hearing and Gordon Cole is played by David Lynch. He's Cooper's boss. We saw him a couple times on the series. But then we're going to go to a bunch of spirits. And if you ever wondered what spirits do on an off day, apparently they sit around a green formica table. And talk about Garbenbosia. Wasn't there mention of a Formica table or something in the series? I remember that word being used. Certainly cream corn, and more about that in just a second. <laughs> I can't even believe what they had planned for cream corn. But, <laughs> yes, just to put it all in context, that Jeffries was snatched away from our world in Buenos Aires and has spent the last two years in an astral realm that just kind of looks like a, well, a room above a convenience store. It's got newspaper over the windows. It's pretty shabby. And yeah, a cheap Formica table where the killer and the midget and bowls of cream corn and those tree muns or chalfonts, the old woman and her magician son who sometimes turns into a spider monkey and <laughs> an engineer, an electrician. And what was that? <laughs> hey, hold on it, was that chris isaac in the beard or something i can't tell that was yeah obvious. i just wrote down there was a bearded man i didn't know who it was though he's known as the woodsman there's actually two woodsmans there i think they're they're craftsmen and one of them was duke leto in uh the dune it was jurgen proch now he's just a friend of david lynch that showed up and said yeah i'll do this okay so it wasn't like chris isaac has been in there so long that he grew a beard mm, well that'd be a way of interpreting it but no <laughs> that's not chris isaac playing that part and so yes we have a weird astral realm supposedly david bowie has lived here for the last two years Philip Jeffries, his character with a very bad Southern accent, has been trapped in this realm. <laughs> it's because you can't have an FBI agent who's British. I, yeah, I guess that's part of it. You're a good point on that, but oof, horrible accent. And I'm a David Bowie fan, but maybe the worst thing he's ever done. Maybe he's related to Lana with that Southern accent. I still think it's a better Southern accent than what Benedict Cumberbatch tries when he goes Southern. <laughs> All right. Well, at any rate, so yeah, a room full of lots of weirdness. The word Garmin Bosia. It's totally made up, but the subtitles tell us it should mean pain and sorrow. Yeah, at the end, when they repeat the word the first time, I'm thinking, are they eating beans? What are they talking about? Garbanzo? <laughs> Yes, gar I thought so too, garbanzo beans, yes. <laughs> well, you know, about the cream corn, Robert Ingalls, who was there for much of the writing in the second season, said at one point, believe it or not, this realm was going to be made entirely of cream corn. That it was a planet of cream corn and that all the monsters came out of cream corn. It didn't happen, so it doesn't exist. Was this Lynch's idea? Yes, of course it was Lynch's idea. And it's what Lynch does. Is he just fucking with us? <laughs> well, I think what happens is he just riffs, you know, something goes wrong and the lights flicker. And all before you know it, you have a, a subplot about the spirits traveling through electricity. I think that he is just trying to mash together and sometimes not very sophisticated or cohesive ways all of these things that just happen and so it's what happens when you improv a mystery suddenly you have really random non 
contiguous things, a square pegs going in round holes. And that's what it sounds like to me. I must have watched this clip in this room so many times because you got the grandson pointing at, I think, Bob and saying, fell a victim, or maybe he's pointing at us and saying, fell a victim. You've also got this weird jumping guy with a mask that's similar to the grandson's mask. Coming back for season three. He is? Really? Yep. Well, I'm actually glad. I, I want to know more about this. And they're really overpopulating this. In the TV series, we really started with Bob, Mike, and the little man in a dream. And then we found out Mike was real. We had Bob, then we had the little man, then we had a giant, then we had a waiter, then we had the Tremons. <laughs> And now we've got the jumping guy and the woodsman. This is getting to be a very crowded lodge. You know what, though? I kind of dig this vibe. Like, if you want to just do some crazy, weird, avant-garde, eraserhead style thing about the Black Lodge, I could totally go with this. The fact that I'm trying to figure out what this has to do with Agent Desmond disappearing and all the stuff with Teresa Banks and Deer Meadows, it's not fitting together as a really strange but compelling movie should. Yeah, and again, if this were a trilogy of movies, maybe we would see in the next one that David Bowie was trying to find this ring and thus why he got sucked into this realm. But they don't have the coverage for that. What they have is David Bowie disappearing from Buenos Aires and then reappearing Buenos Aires. He's actually like, his jacket is smoking. He, it, there's The wall is charred when he reemerges. The maid is so stunned. To clarify, this is one of the cutscenes. Yeah, the maid is crawling on the ground. A, a, a bellboy has shit himself and saying, are you the man? I mean, so he did come back and surprise everyone, but I think that it's just... It's kind of like a flickering light. He can come back into our realm for a little bit, and then he disappears back into this astral plane yet again. And so that's what this is here in Philadelphia, a brief moment that he can come, talk about what's going on, and then disappear. Out of all of this, there's one thing I like. One thing in this entire 35-minute bit. When Cooper goes to investigate the disappearance of Desmond... He finds Chet's car, and on the windshield, somebody has written, Let's Rock. In red. This now retroactively tells us that when the little man from another place in Cooper's dream in episode three of Twin Peaks said, Let's Rock, it meant something to Cooper. That was the little man telling Cooper, hey, this is all related to Teresa Banks and now Chester Desmond. Right. And of course, it's also a way of yet again riffing and lovingly making note of what's happened before and trying to fuse it together. I'm not a big fan of this. I think that this mystery was put together slapdash, and some of its best conceits are coming from improvisation. They weren't scripted. I'm not knocking the show for doing that, but don't try and tell me now that it all makes sense. It's a shaggy dog story. You don't look back. You don't look too close at the cracks and crevices. You just appreciate it in the moment and you continue forward. To go back and to try and say it all makes sense is to underline how it doesn't make sense. I mean, re really, this is midichlorians are space germs in your blood. I mean, that this is making the mistake that we yell at the Phantom Menace for. A decade later, I mean, where it's trying to over-explain everything. I, I, and I think even today, with a lot of prequels, they haven't gotten it right because they 
feel like they have to explain everything we've already seen. Well, we've seen it. So why do that? I'll agree with you, Jacob, on the Laura Palmer bit, but I don't think anything here is midichlorians. Maybe Garmin Bosia is close, but I don't think it's ever explained enough. We never have a scene of Bob sitting down with little Laura and going, Garmin Bosia is the pain and <laughs> suffering that we eat and it feeds our demon soul. You know, I mean, if it had gone there, yes, as it is, they are making callbacks they're not coherent enough to make me believe they're really trying to explain anything, but I'm going to give Lynch this. He set a mood. There's definitely a mood in that first half hour that puts me on edge. It piques my curiosity. Again, you got the Battle of Menti music. I don't know that we needed to spend a full quarter of the movie on these new FBI agents and Teresa Banks, but... All right, I'm very happy when it's over. When we finally get Cooper talking into the tape, we get Diane, and then 35 minutes into the movie, we get the Twin Peaks music. We're going back to Twin Peaks, and we're going to start with that music. It feels like we're starting an episode now. And isn't this where they should have started the whole movie? Because, yeah, I thought everything was horrible in this first half hour. Even, even Kyle MacLachlan was not a fun presence to see here. I didn't enjoy any of it. I always enjoy Gordon Cole. Look, this first half hour, there's a lot of things to complain about. I've always admired it more than the rest of the film because it does feel different. It doesn't... More? Yeah, I just... I find this to be the more interesting stuff because, look, we're going to talk about when we get to Laura. I don't find a whole lot of things interesting with her. Now we're going to spend an hour and a half with her. Well, Laura is sort of everything that brought Cooper to Twin Peaks. She has a lot that's interesting about her because she touches everyone's live there, and she does have this duality. <laughs> Except all of that's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah. I actually disagree. I feel like about 70% of the cast did come back, but the important ones didn't come back. Of the big ones, Laura Flynn Boyle playing best friend Donna Hayward didn't come back. Really hurtful. And Ben Horn, one of the major suspects in the murder mystery, not in this film. Richard Beamer is not here either. Now, Laura Flynn Boyle, there were some rumors at the time. This is a movie that's going to have Donna take her shirt off. And the rumors at the time is that Laura Flynn Boyle didn't like the content that she'd be required to do. And so that's why she said no. Later on, she's clarified that she had other projects that she had to do. The same thing happened with Sherilyn Fenn. She was filming Of Mice and Men at this point and just couldn't get out of it to come and do a Twin Peaks scene. And things were contentious. I mentioned McLaughlin didn't want to come back. A lot of the cast felt really burned by Lynch. It felt like Laura Flynn Boyle was leaving, but I read one comment that really I had to laugh. I don't remember where I read this on the internet, but that Moira Kelly looks more like Donna in the pilot episode than Laura Flynn Boyle did after she started going really gaunt in the second season. Well, yeah, I call BS on a lot of this stuff. Laura Flynn Boyle demanded that her character appear more sexy. She was looking for parts where she could take off her top and be Sharon Stone, the ice pick, ice queen, and made a movie. Instead of making this, she made The Temp, which is arguably worse but also more entertaining. Does she actually go topless? I've never seen her disrobe in a film. She did not go topless in that one, but she wanted to play sexy vixen. And so I feel like 
this should have been tailor-made for her. She wanted Donna to steal the limelight away from another character that's not here, the sex kitten Audrey Horn. I definitely feel like here was that opportunity. I tend to believe that people didn't like Laura and that Laura didn't like people towards the end of the shoot of the second season, that people were just ready for her to be gone and vice versa. Very possible. As for Richard Beamer, Ben Horn, he didn't return, but in his defense, Lynch had only written him literally one scene. You point out rightly that when Laura Palmer's killer is revealed, it really came down to two people, Leland Palmer or Ben Horn. But if you're doing this, bringing Ben in, you'd have to at least make him a major part. Here, there was going to be one scene of him giving some cocaine to Laura, and the actor was like, no, I don't like what this does to my character, and I don't like it as an actor, so I refuse to do this. So what Lynch wrote for Ben Horn in this wasn't all that interesting to begin with. Not that you can even have this mystery, right? Again, even if you haven't seen Twin Peaks... I don't know how this would play, but I don't think it's the right choice to try to make this a murder mystery over which one's going to kill her because the majority of the audience is going to know. It is a slow reveal. We will start with Laura Palmer in a very sunny neighborhood, a characteristically sunny. This is happening in the last week of her life, and this is supposedly February in upstate Washington, and there's not rain or snow throughout this entire shoot. It was filmed by the same cinematographer that did do the pilot, but they shot it in September and not February. And even though Twin Peaks is supposed to be on the very northeastern border of Washington State, it's actually filmed in Suquamish and around that area. They don't really get much snow up there. There's, You know, it's just north of Seattle. Seattle is not known for its snow. Rain! Any precipitation. It is sunny. Rain. Well, yes. Rain, yes. Throughout this whole movie, it is sunny and blue skies. And that seems really wrong. I am happy that they shot on location. That was a compromise that they had to do for the bulk of the show. It is something that they aren't going to have to do for season three. We are at actual real places, but sometimes that was distracting too. Like when she goes to school, I'm like, where are the red stripe lines that go down the hallway? This doesn't look like the same place. I looked that up because that bothered me too. That high school where they filmed the pilot was so distinctive. And I'm like, this isn't the same school. Well, it turns out it's not the same school. It's a school in a different town, but shortly after the pilot was filmed, the school where they filmed the pilot had a renovation and removed all the stripes anyway. Mm. Well, it wouldn't have taken much of their $10 million budget to paint <laughs> some new stripes on it. I just felt like this look is not the same, and I think that was a mistake. It's okay if you want to make a show with a different tone, but it should look like the place that we've seen before. Agreed. They did get the same house where they filmed the pilot, and they did film in Tweed's Cafe, the Double R Diner, which is where they shot in the pilot. It's really just very meta that they filmed the pilot on location, then had to recreate a lot of those places on sets in California, and now we're back and we're like, well, things don't look the same. <laughs> right. But the point is that Laura seems to start off seeming to have a perfectly normal high school existence. I was always under the perception that most people believed she was happy and popular and had no stress or strife. But in fact, it would be obvious to anyone that would take a second to glance at her that she is in extreme agony, Garmin Bosia, throughout all of this. <laughs> she is not doing a great job of hiding the fact that she's about to crack up. No, you, you say 
we believe she has a good life at the beginning. No, we see her doing coke in the bathroom at school right at the beginning. Like, I don't feel like they ever put her in a good light. She's sniffing coke. She's taking her top off for James in the gym. Yeah, you know exactly what kind of movie we're going to be getting when that happens. And I was shocked. I did not remember that Cheryl Lee did nudity in this film. And after binge watching pretty much the entire Twin Peaks series... This is definitely a change of tone. I figured that's why you watched this so much when it came out. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that's terrible. I just want to say right now, it's fine if you want to make a salacious movie about a a girl's sexual awakening. There's been plenty of great softcore, late-night cable, Skinamax kind of stuff about that. (laughs) Most starring Sherilyn Fenn. But this is what we're going to be told late into this, is this is a terrifying story about sexual abuse. And that should never seem sexy. And I do feel like a lot of this is very exploitive without a real good reason as to why we're looking at it. Yeah, I remember the first time I watched this film, I felt dirty afterwards. I'm like, I gotta take a shower because, yeah, it does feel so exploitive when it's supposed to be about a victim of rape and incest. I don't feel like you go for the gratuitous nudity that they're going to go with with Laura here. It is an interesting balance because I almost find the nudity, even though it's usually happening during sex, often it is non-eroticized to me. It's like, it's almost dehumanizing. It shows the degradation of her. When she's with James is perhaps the scene where it seems sexiest, and that's supposed to be her one human connection. She and Donna are kind of having spats here and there. She and Bobby are just kind of using each other for drugs. But she and James, that's supposed to be the real love. So that's the one time. But later on when she's going to be at a club and hooking, I don't know that I find that sexy so much as I find it just dehumanizing. It it turns her into an object for us the same way she's an object for her Johns. And I feel that's wrong. You should humanize. If we're supposed to feel bad that she is a victim of these horrible acts, humanize her. I don't, you know, I got the sense when I listened to you guys talk about the secret diary that that was a successful thing, that it humanized Laura and made her a person. And I don't feel we're, we're going to get her for like an hour and a half in this movie. And I don't feel like I know her any better, that she's any more than just a dead body by the end of this film. I want to point out something that I think is pretty important. This is the first time, though not the last time, that David Lynch has made a movie about a woman. Up until this point, the main character has been a proxy for himself. And here he's stepping away to look at Dorothy Valens, right? This is not about Jeffrey Beaumont. This is about a woman who is being yes, subjugated and abused. And that's not normally David Lynch's perspective. I think it's really brave that he wants to attempt that. But I would also say that I don't feel like he's fully in the mode of pulling it off here. And I maybe also feel like some of the problem, although she gives it all, I mean, I definitely feel like Cheryl Lee is trying to give a performance that is letting it all out there. I'm just not sure that she's capable of going to the depths and selling me on the horror of what's happening here. She was hired to be a dead body, and they should have left her dead. She acts like one. Yeah, yeah that, that is a big knock, is she cannot pull off the, the pathos that she needs to be able to pull off for Laura Palmer as a living being. 
Oh, we're all in agreement of this? Yes. I'm, I'm surprised because I definitely, I mean, it's on the video box and I've definitely heard people say she gives one terrific, maybe a landmark performance, an Oscar worthy, one of a kind, nobody's done it better. There is one part of her performance that we'll get to later that I do like, but no, for the most part, her as Laura Palmer as a living being, no. Okay. She does not work for me. No, me either. I really wish I liked her more. I wish that she could bring me more into this. And I think she screams really well. She did it in the series when she'd show up <laughs> in the Black Lodge. You're, you're getting to the part that I like about her. Uh, yeah, I think she really has a frightening scream. But there are so many scenes where I'm like, the words on the page make me think that it would be good. But like, there's one line where she's talking to Donna. She's like, are you my best friend? And I think that that should be a heart wrenching scene. And it's just not selling it to me. I'm sorry, but she is a big problem. You're, you're recasting Donna. You might've thought about recasting <laughs> Laura. And yeah, I want to stress for those that didn't follow us, Laura Palmer never, with the exception of one flashback, appeared as alive in the TV series. She was a photograph. She was stories in a diary. She was what other people remembered. We never really knew these events with her depicting them. That is, I guess, the perverse thrill of this is to see a dead body come to life and reenact what we know is going to happen but watch it dramatically play out. If that is going to be any appeal at all, we need to buy this performance. And I'm glad to know that I'm not alone in this, that I don't find this performance works. And I don't believe that she was experienced enough. She could probably do it better now than at the time. At the time, this was one of her first acting gigs. And we knew also, for those who didn't follow us at Now Peaking, she couldn't act. Because Cheryl Lee did come back as Laura's identical cousin, Madeline, and she was terrible there, too. Uh, you know, you guys were a little harder. I, I felt like, and I feel like in many cases, David Lynch can get a performance that he wants from anybody. Non-actors, musicians, anybody who's not named Chris Isaac. Yeah, I was about to say Chris Isaac. He can usually get what he <laughs> wants. That is the worst performance I've ever seen David Lynch give a pass to. But by and large, I felt like on the show, yeah, Cheryl Lee is not an experienced, trained thespian, but I felt like what she was asked to do with Maddie, and certainly the moment in which she was murdered, was very heart-wrenching. And so I think that many times these actors are capable of moving us, even if I wouldn't hire them for the next Shakespeare play. I'm really interested in hearing Cheryl Lee read that secret diary of Laura Palmer in the upcoming audiobook, because I wonder if she can place Laura Palmer's pathos better now than she could 25 years ago. I bet she can. And that's the thing. When she played Madeline, the identical cousin, it was a very different role than Laura. Madeline was sweet and innocent still. Laura is a sexually abused drug addict, and she's not pulling this off as an actress. It's kind of difficult to talk about because I feel like it's just a wave of depravity. But let's kind of walk through the movie 
and what we're seeing here. In the beginning, it has been established that since she was 12, she's been molested. She goes to her friends on Meals and Wheels, Harold, and hands him a diary, her real diary. She has two because she leads a double life. And in this diary, she's found that someone has been reading it, tearing up pages. She knows it is a creature. I'm not even going to call it a man. A creature that comes to her named Bob. Her discovery throughout this movie is to learn that Bob is her father. That will happen in about half an hour. Yeah, and it's really the diary that sets events into motion. Because you're right, she does seem, other than the coke habit fairly happy until she goes to write in that diary, notices the pages are ripped out, and thus begins her panic that will go on for about 90 minutes until she's dead. And she does go visit Harold. We only get one scene with Harold. The thing that I'll grant this movie is it does start with her handing over the diary, which is how the diary ended, which is somebody's been tearing out pages. I'm going to give you to Harold, thus minimizing the possibility of conflicts in the timeline, but yet not fully avoiding them. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of what we get after this is a descent into hell and that it is David Lynch using lots of expressionistic devices uh, sometimes very effectively, to unnerve us with the horror of incest. It's something that I don't feel like it takes much for me to be horrified. I mean, I think that that is a subject matter that is easily to bring us to repulsion and grief and shame. I don't know that his approach is the right one. I mean, I, is it respectful to have midgets and cream corn and horses and all of this surrealism if what you're trying to convey is a tragedy about sexual abuse going back to Eraserhead, i that is really a movie just about a feeling for me like what is this feeling of anxiety and and so yeah i think you could do that is create some surrealist horror film that gets at what does it really feel like the confusion maybe the guilt whatever all those different feelings i think you can do that but Lynch fails here, if that's what he was going for. Let me try to mount a defense for this film, then, in that you say horror movie, Jacob. I think this is a horror movie. Oh, I, I agree. Mean, I agree. It's, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street type film. We've got a demon phantom coming to Laura in her sleep. We're going to have dream sequences. And so I'm okay if you're going to go basically with a slasher or a supernatural slasher film, if you don't want this to be, you know, a lifetime TV movie emotion about incest, I'm okay with just making it horror, especially since her father is possessed by another demon, thus it's not actual incest. It's not that her father has lustful feelings for her. It's that this demon has lustful feelings for her and uses her father's body. Yeah, but if Lynch wants to get it, like, what does it mean to be an incest victim or what does it feel like? You got to make that jump. You could say there's this evilness that possesses you. But again, that's why this film is so muddy is it's like this is as serious about incest as Nightmare on Elm Street is about pedophilia. Right, which is why I don't view this as an incest movie. And I know that it's her father who does all this, and yet, because of the way the movie plays it, I never think of it the way I would if it was straight-up incest. And so... I don't judge it so harshly for that. I think that's an even more damning statement than anything I could say. If this movie <laughs> doesn't hit you for its dramatic weight, then my God, if you can gloss over the fact that it's a father taking advantage of his daughter, that's really bad. 
I actually think the point of this, in Lynch's mind, is can I take something that was sort of a MacGuffin, that was, that was a lark, something that we, it was so abstracted, we only thought of Laura Palmer as to what she could mean for the rest of the town. Can I take that and make it real? Can I bring it to life? Can I make you care about it? And it's hard to know whether it's the writing or the performance, but the answer is a resounding no for me. And so what I'm faced with then for the next 90 minutes is just grueling torture, some of which is horrific. I mean, this moment where like the ceiling fan seems to be talking to her and saying, I want to taste you through my mouth. Scary. That is really scary stuff. I want to taste through your mouth. Bob wants to possess her is how I read that. Yeah, no, that is that is horrifying. That is as sickening as anything in The Exorcist. If you want to get into this being about sexual abuse, like some of the most horrific moments for me is actually when it is Leland and Laura sits down, they sit down for dinner and he's like, have you, you have dirt under your fingernails? You haven't washed your hands. Did you get that necklace from your lover? I'm, I'm guessing Bob is moving him, but because you're only seeing Leland, I'm thinking of it as this possessive father that's getting into some very uncomfortable territory. But Sarah Palmer's standing right there watching all of this and... Well, that's what makes it even creepier is that that's the mother that just goes along with it and lets it happen. Well, how does the mother not say when Laura Palmer's found dead, oh, by the way, my husband's really creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't see it that way and because this is metaphor and symbolism and it's not real. But the way Grace Zabriskie, the actress who plays Sarah Palmer, Laura's mother, is playing it, she's disturbed by what she's seeing. The way she is playing these scenes makes me think she knows her husband's a creeper. (laughs) But in real life, that's how it is a lot of the time. So I feel like this is the more successful part of if this is what Lynch was going for. Yeah, I'll talk about a scene that really did move me in the way that I feel like it should. It's worth pointing out, Jacob, that scene you're talking about with the dirt under the fingernails, I agree, it's creepy, it's impactful. It's also just creepy because that's where the the letter is going to be stuck underneath. Well, yeah, that's all. it's obviously a callback to where he puts the letters. But by that point, Laura has learned that it is him. That she had had this moment where she had gone to the Meals on Wheels, she's at the Double R Diner, and the Chalfonts, or the Tremons, the, the old lady and the little kid that likes to hop, have come and given her a painting. And they've told her that the person that was reading her diary is looking for it right now. That she's going to run home, and when she goes there, she doesn't see him until she runs outside and her father comes out. Well, she sees Bob. She goes to her room and sees Bob there. And this is a question we had during Now Peaking, is when this happens, who sees Bob and who sees Leland? Because Ronette Pulaski, who's involved in the end, she identifies sketches of Bob. So up until this point, Laura has only seen Bob. So she goes to her bedroom and sees Bob there and runs out and waits But then her father exits the house. And that's when she knows. That's when she starts talking to the angel picture in a room and saying, is it true? Can this be? She really goes into a spiritual crisis thinking, oh my God, this thing that has been in my mind that could have just been mental illness or it could have been, yeah, a a creepy neighbor who is hooked up with my hooking with truckers business. We'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) It could have been an outside person, but no, this is the closest man in my life. And one of the lines at the very end I find really, really interesting is when she's about to be murdered, her father says, 
I always thought you knew it was me, but then Bob shows up and said, I never knew you knew it was me. So the whole time, Bob thought he was camouflaged as Leland, and in fact, she could see through the Leland disguise, and she saw Bob. Yeah, I take it to mean that when Leland is in the throes of his id, that is all that anyone would see. If you and I were to have walked in that house, we would have seen Frank Silva, the actor, not Ray Wise, the actor. That though they may inhabit the same body, the horrible act can only be seen with the scary-looking dude. Which is, when the killer was revealed in the series, I asked... Is Maddie seeing Bob when she's being killed, or is she seeing Leland? So I guess she was seeing what we saw. When we saw Bob, she saw Bob. So we know that Laura is not going to live through this. As the days approach, we know that she's doomed. What should be important, where the suspense is hinged, is can her soul be saved? Can we see her redeemed? Is she doomed when she puts on this ring? She starts having these weird visions, that painting comes to life, and she's starting to step into a darker realm that I believe is the Black Lodge, and her hand is starting to be possessed. She's starting to get that ring. I see it that her soul may be damned, and so can she avert that fate if she can't save her life? And that's the total Nightmare on Elm Street transition is when she's suddenly in the painting. That is right out of, like, Nightmare 3 or 4. This freaks me out because as a kid, I always had nightmares of paintings coming to life and getting stuck in them, so... (laughs) This stuff, it was actually very effective for me because it's it had a flashback to being a kid again. But here, what, we resolve Cooper from season two, kind of, Annie? Is it future or past? It's a line that got cut. It's in one of the deleted scenes. But the little man says it, and I think it's really important. It's I think what he's underlining here is there's something cyclical. Time seems to be operating different in Twin Peaks. And that, yeah, we can jump ahead past the TV show and back before the TV show. And there seems to be a similar thing happening on here. Yes, this ring. And Cooper maybe fated to the same fate that Laura is. That's the way I take it from watching the end of the series, or at least the end of the second season. And I always was so pissed by this scene because, again, coming into this movie, I wanted to know what happened to Dale, what happened to Annie. But the fact that in the middle of this movie, Heather Graham shows up and says, good Dale is trapped in the Black Lodge. The audience jumped, though. I remember the entire theater jumped at that sight of all of a sudden Heather Graham is in her bed. And the fact that nobody knew why that hadn't seen the show made it even scarier. I saw the show. I still don't know why. And the fact that she says, write it in your diary. And Laura never does. But she had handed over the diary at this point. There was no diary to write in except the fake one. Go visit Harold. Ask if you can add a page. Give him a call. Yeah. (laughs) Add this line. Sure. And you know what? I'm having trouble keeping track of days. I think that might be intentional, but the TV series was very clearly delineated. We knew every episode was a different day. And here, I don't know how close we are to the Thursday she dies. I think at some point there is a a shot of a church, or maybe that was a deleted scene. So I think we're somewhere around Sunday. She's got about four days left, 
but I wish that I could understand that better. Overseas, this was called Twin Peaks, The Last Seven Days of Laura Palmer. And so we're, I guess we're seeing a week, but I was not really able to sit and parse out, okay, it's night, it's day, it's night, it's day, and count it back. I'd have to watch it a third time doing nothing but that and not be able to get lost in the narrative to do that. But yeah, I wonder how close we are. And I'll give it this. I think this irony works that we know her fate, but she does not. It puts the sense of dread over this whole thing. You want to see her get saved, and yet everything she does keeps going worse. She's got to score some coke with Bobby because she's got this habit She's got to go out and hook, and she's going to take Donna with her. Well, that wasn't intended. Uh, you know, I, I think it was Sunday. The parents were out, you know, at the potluck. So what are the girls going to do but go to Canada and screw strange men? They've done it before. It's worth saying, in the diary anyway, there was an incident when they were young girls, and they kind of seduced uh, some older Canadians. And Laura Flynn Boyle, as Donna gave that speech to Harold, that they did it too. So it was in the series. But here, Donna, she's not given much to do in this movie, but the one thing she really gets to do is she's trying to show Laura, anything you can do, I can do. I can be as bad as you. Basically like Laura Flamboyle with Sherilyn Fenn. So <laughs> she's going to go out to, they start at the roadhouse, and I feel like we get a callback to the Twin Peaks episode where the killer is revealed because... We got Julie Cruz up there singing this mournful dirge. Laura gets emotional. It's reminding me of when everybody was crying at the roadhouse and Maddie was killed. People cry at David Lynch works. It's just forever. It's just a fountain that will never cease. And <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that the, the being overwhelmed with emotion all of a sudden and for no explicable reason may be David Lynch at his best. I mean, honestly, he does that to me sometimes. I can't explain why I'm crying sometimes when I'm watching this series either. I'll say this. It's a weird mix. On one hand, I feel like Moria Kelly is probably a better actress. She is pulling off this competition better than when Laura Flynn tried to do it in season two. During that time, Donna was trying to be Laura and put on her clothes and glasses and really impress James. And here we have Donna doing essentially the same things with Buck and Tommy. I, I feel like Moira is more convincing as a wannabe bad girl. But the, the thing she can't overcome is she doesn't fit in here. I know what Donna looks like and she's not it. And I just can't get past that. So I cannot accept this performance. I consider Moira Kelly to be an upgrade. I really do. I was not a fan of Laura Flynn Boyles on the show. This is up there with replacing Katie Holmes with Maggie Gyllenhaal to me. Yeah, Dark Knight. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it can work. I, I just, for me, it's weird. Partly because I did like Donna. Yeah, it, it is just weird because you're used to Laura Flynn Boyle in this role. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's an upgrade, and yet I can't accept it. It's strange. Yeah, Lynch, for whatever reason, he burned bridges. He was not able to get important people back. He had to write some out of the movie. But Donna is one you can't get rid of. And so we have this recast, and 
I'm trying to accept it for what it is. Moira Kelly comes in and does a really passable job for what it is. But no, none of the scenes with her mean as much as they would if I'd seen Laura Flynn Boyle doing these exact same things because I would have watched Laura Flynn Boyle for two years and thus it would change my perception. That's all that I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of this scene where they go to this, what do you call it, the pink room in Canada? Playland is actually the name of the bar. I think it actually straddles Canada and the U.S. That There's a sign that says Canada and the United States of Fuck. <laughs> and so when they go into the back room of it, that's a cut scene, by the way, that all that's established. But when they go into the back room and you get that steel guitar riff and the lights start strobing, yeah, it's a pure David Lynch club all the way through. And I really felt like we needed that cut scene because when I watched the regular cut of this, I thought they were still in the roadhouse i was like is this the back room of the roadhouse we never saw this happen there no i i got that they were somewhere else i didn't watch those scenes i got that they were somewhere different i was just confused i'm like is this a strip club this got to be a canadian strip club because it's like a log cabin and they would pour maple syrup on them or, or something Jacques does say welcome to Canada, but I, I mean, Jacques Canadian, so I didn't know if that was metaphorical, and Jacques saying things like, I am as blank as a thought, so I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, and this is, uh, again, the girls are competing. Uh, you can see Laura in this moment saying, okay, Donna, you think you can keep up with me, then you just try. Here's what I do. I take off my top, and Donna will pick it up and tie it around her waist. And then I think she knows that the beer is roofied. And she says, chug a log. I think she does too. But then later she freaks out when Donna's like passing out and getting raped. So, but that's a crisis of conscience. That is her becoming more sober and realizing, oh my God, this is terrible that she's becoming like me. I think in this moment, and I think Laura has a really mean streak in her that she's shown many times. She's oftentimes cruel to Bobby and James. And I think here she's just saying, all right, I'm going to punish you for trying to think that you can be as slutty as me. You want to punish her, make her sleep with Jacques. Laura seems fine to be making out with Jacques. It grosses me out every time. <laughs> but it should be said, Ronette's also there. The, yep. I don't mm -hmm. think we've seen her yet in this film, but she's going to become semi-important, I think, to the Twin Peaks mythos. Much like Twin Peaks the series, we forget about Ronette, and she should be a big part of this. She and Laura were hanging out with Jacques and Leo placing Flesh World ads, we find out in the series. And so here is where they're going to introduce her, and there's a throwaway line, Oh, I haven't seen you since I was thrown out of One-Eyed Jacks when they were hooking up in Canada. Yes, you have. I saw you yesterday at my job at the perfume counter. They're totally rewriting <laughs> things from season one that I hate, but what? Ever. Well, it's also brought up Teresa Banks. Hey, do you know she was killed? And did you know she was going to blackmail someone and ask what Leland looked like? Again, I think if there's a central mystery to this movie, it, for Laura, it's like, is Leland really Bob? So I guess they're playing into that. The Teresa Banks murder is not given its due. It's going to become the central mystery. I mean, this whole thing is like, who killed Teresa Banks? We don't see Leland at the beginning do it. And the reveal that's going to take the whole movie to find out is that she was hooking with Laura and Ronette. I guess they had a little hooker club and Leland was down for a three-way till he found out his daughter was in it. And Which is weird if he's been with her since the age of 12. Like, he hasn't had a problem with it. Yeah, well, he actually tells Teresa. We have four flashbacks when we're suddenly... It's, it's not only to understand Laura more, but I think we're to understand Leland. He tells Teresa, you look like my daughter. That's actually a turn-on for him. 
gross. It is creepy as hell. Yeah, I mean, again, it really is difficult to deal with. I don't like anything that they do with Teresa Banks here. I mean, first of all, we're told she was 17 years old, and yet she's living on her own, drifting as a waitress. I guess she could have been a dropout from school. She's like Shelly, right? If she didn't get the abusive boyfriend. She looks like she's 30 years old. Well, so does Laura, though. I mean, everyone looks old, except new Donna. I looked this up after our conversations on Now Peaking, and interesting, the age of consent in Washington is 16 anyway, so... A lot of the things we were wondering about underage girls. I don't care what the age of consent is. Just someone that old with someone that young. Mm, there's usually a psychological thing going on that's not good. Yeah, I don't want to have that debate. Uh, all I'm saying is I'm not buying this as a 17-year-old girl that's running out of a sex magazine through the aid of Leo and Jacques. It should be said that Jacques was the one that brought Donna and Laura together with these two men in the club. And he's also, maybe in some ways, their pimp for these hookups in the Red Diamond Motel. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely think Jacques is arranging the hookups. I mean, we see that when she's in the roadhouse. She looks over at Jacques and then nods, and then Jacques sends the two guys over, because I guess they were going to have a gangbang until they realize Donna's along for the ride, and they go with that direction. But Jacques is setting it up. What I don't like is merely geography. They are on literally opposite corners of the state. I could go with Leland Palmer, a lawyer, would have some business travel that would take him away from home, and his wife may not understand exactly what's going on. But that... Laura and Ronette are traveling cross state and nobody's noticing that they're missing and that Leland's going down there. She's got a busy, active social life, too. I mean, it should be said she's tutoring English. She's helping a special <laughs> needs child. She's Washington is a big state. If you're traveling from the Idaho border to five hours. Yeah, it's 10 hours round trip. So that's a pretty big deal. You'll be noticed. Yeah, again, but again, logic is the least of my concerns here. <laughs> really what I dislike is the idea that they're tying it into Laura at all. Like, why couldn't it just be Leland stepping out? You know, he's had this possession. If we're to believe what was said in the show, he's been possessed in some form by Bob and struggling with these impulses most of his life since he was a small boy. And so now, all of a sudden, it's going to cause him to act on it and to kill. I'm curious to know why that is. I don't feel like that's Laura's story to tell. No, and I agree. I just think Teresa Banks should be completely removed from this. If I think that if she advertised in Flesh World and they advertised in Flesh World, that is enough of a connection, period. I don't think Teresa should have known them. It makes the connection far too great. When Cooper comes up and he's looking for a letter under Laura's fingernail, that should be the only connection between the two cases. If Cooper was a better investigator, and I argued for much of season two, he's not that good at his job. If he was a better investigator, he would have found out a lot more of these connections. We never even knew Teresa Banks was in Flesh World. I mean... The fact that Cooper, we do get a scene earlier where he's like, oh, I've had a vision of the next victim. She's sexually active and a blonde. And Albert's like, well, that could be anyone. And she's serving food right now. Like, he's having visions 
of who the victim's going to be. Yeah. Look, th- this is Chewie and Yoda knowing each other in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> it just, it's making it too small. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but I agree with you. I do not like the idea that they want to tie it up so tightly, particularly when it doesn't tie well. I mean, that's the problem is like these story strands aren't going to go to well, well together. You can't make me believe in the logic of it. And I absolutely hate the fact that Leland Palmer only kills Teresa Banks because she was going to blackmail him because she found out that Laura, one of her call girl friends, was related to him. That's not why Bob kills. Bob doesn't kill because of that. Well, and it seems like at the end when Bob's going to kill Laura and and possibly Renette, it's out of jealousy. It's that there's that Laura is seeing other men. Like I feel like that would be the reason to kill Teresa is that she was hooking Laura up with other men and Bob seems possessive and wants her all to himself. Blackmail though. Can we just say, I mean, it was something that I brought up when we talked about the murder. Is there a way of looking at this and not seeing possession and evil spirits? Is there a way of seeing that those are just metaphor for the dark impulses in Leland's mind and that this is a story that if you take all those scenes out, could be told and be believable? I'm going to say Garbin, no, Zia. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, no, it's it, you can't when Laura has only ever seen Bob until this movie. She realizes, realizes it's her dad. Well, you know, there's mass psychosis, shared psychosis. For six years? And and he's been <laughs> drugging people, so maybe if he drugged Laura every time and put on a gray wig. But we don't see that. We, we see that he drugs Sarah, put something in her milk, I'm sure. All right, here's a relationship we haven't brought up yet, but is really important in the show and don't know what to make of it here. The killer, the phantom, Bob, had a friend who also helped him kill. At some point in the last 40 years, he was partners with a Mike. And that Mike is now a one-armed shoe salesman named Philip Michael Gerard, who pops up way late in the movie to swerve in a camper van behind the Palmer convertible when Leland and Laura are on their way to breakfast to scream, and I'm going to quote it, You stole the corn! I had it canned over the store and miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a stillness like the Formica table. Uh, I should have turned on subtitles because I didn't understand a word he said. I did turn on the subtitles for that, too. And the only line I got was the thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. That was the only one I could make out. But yes, I did subtitle the rest. Yeah, he knows. He knows that Leland Palmer is Bob. That is not something he knows for any part of the TV series. And that would be really important to know. Maybe he stopped taking his medicine at this point and starts taking it again once we get into the TV series. And then they take him off that medicine and he still doesn't know. If you're going to use prequel analogies, this is the same as Qui-Gon teaching Obi-Wan instead of Yoda. Because (laughs) when Mike showed up at this, I have, again, didn't see this movie for 20 years. I had no memory of Mike in it. But what Mike does in this movie makes absolutely no sense when you got to figure out Two and three days later, he's like, I'm a shoe salesman. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? And here he's chasing after Leland at a stoplight and Leland's revving his engine and they're shouting. (laughs) Did you notice the Indian yelp too? I did. And then later on, he's going to be at the murder scene. Hey, the log lady's log gave us a census count and he was not there. (laughs) 
That is embarrassing. I will get there. We're almost at the murder. Believe it or not, we've kind of gone through all the major things in the week. I want to talk about one other murder. Yes, I got questions about this. Yeah, I know where you're going. It's the other major event of the week. As Bobby said one time, she told James that Bobby killed someone. In the diary, it was one story. We're going to get a different story here. Was this in the TV series, though? It's very similar, though. In both cases, it was a drug deal gone bad, and it was just kind of a self-defense killing. In neither case is Bobby that bad a guy. But yes, this is a direct conflict with the diary. And in a cutscene, we're going to find out what it is, is Bobby's working with Jacques to score some drugs, $10,000 worth of cocaine. And this guy's going to meet them out in the woods by the Packard sawmill to give them the cocaine. They get there. The guy pulls a gun. In a cutscene, we'd find out that isn't even real drugs. It's all baby laxative. Which they used in the show, too. Remember the, the baby laxative? Yes, they they cut the cocaine with baby laxative, yeah. My question is, was the guy delivering the drugs, like, the deputy? From, yes. Yeah, okay, that was the deputy. It's Cliff Howard, the deputy from Deer Meadows, yes. Okay. I was so confused because if you did watch the TV show, I actually thought it was the Mountie. <laughs> it does no. look like him. Yes, but then he gets shot. So I'm like, that can't be the Mountie. Was there ever, I, I get in the book, The Secret Diary, they mentioned this death. This was never set up in the TV show, though, was it? I don't remember, like, Bobby running around saying he killed someone. No, but James had that conversation. Laura told him, and he tells this to Donna. Laura told him. Which I never believed. It was just, yeah, just talk. But what does this add to the film? Like, this whole thing could have been cut. It explains who Bobby killed. It, it's that he had this thread dangling. Can we leave anything to the imagination that we either read in a book or saw in the TV series? Like, they have to go here? This is what prequels do. It gives credence to Lil, right? She had a fitted suit, and that was code for that, that Deer Meadows Sheriff's Department was mixed up in drugs. And so here's proof of that. I stopped thinking about Lil at this point. I... <laughs> Oh, God, you're right. I did not put that together. I thought it was a bust, and I'm like, this deputy didn't seem like a good cop, so why is he traveling all the way up to Twin Peaks to deliver some drugs? I think the biggest sin that David Lynch makes... There's no Chekhov's gun? They just pull out guns and shoot each other? Like, they needed to set up Bobby had a gun earlier. All right, yes, they needed Chekhov's gun. But I think the biggest sin David Lynch makes is just because he's shooting all these scenes 20 minutes apart from each other, he's convinced himself Deer Meadow and Twin Peaks are like twin cities. <laughs> yeah, and and they are in his mind. I think because they have uh, thematically opposites, there's an evil Lucy compared to the real Lucy and what have you. There's equivalence on both. The, the counterpoint, the White Lodge and the Black Lodge of small town Washington. But you're right just geographically mapping it out we saw in a map where Teresa banks died and it is six hours away from where twin peaks would be six hours yeah so all these people coming up that laura palmer's hanging out with Teresa banks that this deputy who did not like law enforcement and is apparently mixed up with drugs is delivering baby powder and what appears to be a sting and that Jacques set bobby up or is Jacques in on the sting? I don't know what Jacques' role in all of this was. It's never explained, but 
Yeah, in the cutscenes, we found out he killed for no reason. <laughs> in the show, we saw him much more in cahoots with his friend Mike. Not to be confused with one-armed Mike, but his high school ginger friend, Mike Nelson, who's dating Donna. Mike is barely in this movie. I think he has one shot of him saying, I'm the man. And guess what? You're not. You're not in this movie. They call him Snake again, too, which I love, because that was his nickname in the pilot. But the other thing is, in the series... Bobby didn't know Jacques. Remember that? Because it has to be Shelley who tells him about Jacques Renault after Bobby finds the blood on Leo's shirt. And Bobby's like, Jacques? The guy from the roadhouse? He's dealing with Leo? Yeah, he knows Leo. And, and they have a scene where he, call, he calls Leo first. Yeah, the football is empty. Remember that empty football from the TV show? Yeah, we see Leo. He's actually in the middle. I think Shelly is actually the one moment where she's not being abused by Leo. She actually has tricked him. It's a Mark Twain, paint my friends, it's fun moment <laughs> where he's on the ground scrubbing the floor tiles and she's like learning how to clean it properly and really watching him do a job he He's trying to make her do. But anyway, Bobby calls during that moment. It's just not successful. He gets hung up on. So then he yeah, goes to Jacques. But why he would know Jacques and then not know Jacques. You're right, Arnie. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's what happens when you watch it all back to back. Uh, this is such the case. Lucas, Lynch, <laughs> the fans know their stuff better than they do. And they just don't listen to the continuity people. They're like, ah, well, we'll just, I want him to know Jacques. It makes, it makes the story I want to tell. So, and both of them are jazz riffing. I mean, keep in mind, I don't think that Lynch is trying to create a cohesive, everything makes sense world. If he did so, he would have scripted all of this out way ahead of time. He would have had five seasons mapped out before he shot a frame of film. That isn't what he's trying to do here. He's trying to make it work. And he, again, he's, he's marinating in the moment. He's traveled places before, and now he just wants to be here in Twin Peaks, staring at Laura. I do think he gets one incredible moment out of her, and that's the ritual of how she actually is attacked. There is, after all of this, Laura in bed, and we see it all go down. Leland turns on the fan, the ceiling fan. I do love that detail. Because you've seen that fan turning so much to see him turn it on. I don't know what it means. Maybe it's the electricity. Yeah. It's the signal that Bob is coming. And then Sarah drinks her milk. That's obviously drugged, unless it's buttermilk. Like, it's clinging <laughs> to the glass. It's just warm milk to put her to bed. Yeah, it's got to be drugged. Yeah, the horse appears to her. But she sees that horse again. <laughs> Yeah, that is, I believe, Troy, the horse that was given to Laura when she was a little girl and only revealed in the secret diary. But uh, who knows what it could be? It's whatever you want it to be. But yeah, Sarah passes out and then Bob crawling in through the window. It's a really powerful, icky, disgusting and effective scene. Yeah, I really am creeped out by that scene. And it does keep with the diary that bob comes in through the window you know yep. that leland i guess goes out his own window to come in laura's window well she climbs down it i mean we see her leaving on the night of her murder okay so there's something out there to climb there's a trellis or something that she uses as a ladder my wife was just stunned that she doesn't tear her garters climbing down that thing but <laughs> we see this and then it's in this time that she finally is like, who are you? Who are you? She saw Leland come out of the house, 
but it's during this rape that she sees Bob transform into her father. Yeah, it's there's nowhere else to go at this point. It's the moment of realization. She either is going to die or get away. Now, Lynch wanted to take this one step scarier. It was going to be Bob, then Leland, then a pig's head. But but Cheryl Lee is like, I am not filming a scene where I'm being raped by a pig's head. <laughs> that wouldn't even make sense. You haven't established what the pig head means. Oh, but think of all the ways that he could try to tie it in. I mean, maybe a special at the diner that was bacon. I mean, no. I saw production <laughs> stills of the pig head prop. It was something. Yeah, I'm sure it looked great. You go back to our Saw retrospective, and that's one of our complaints <laughs> is like, there's a puppet, there's game, there's like, there is a pig in that one, isn't there? Like, there's way too many things. Yes, there is a boar's mask. <laughs> yeah, there's too much stuff. You don't think Garmin Bosia is the puppet of Twin Peaks? <laughs> True. Up to this point, I could say that even though as a continuation of Twin Peaks, it's full of holes and really tonally off, there are effective imagery that is going to be unsettling. And no doubt about it, anyone I've watched this movie with gets creeped out or jolted by something that they see in this movie. It can't not impact you. But the disappointment really is when they depict the final hours, the very last day. I feel like a lot of it is laughable. Like when that angel disappears from the picture? Yes. Angel imagery and the fact that Gerard, the one-armed man, is going to like try and chase them down and then like give up after Renette is thrown out <laughs> of the train car. And, and that Renette is thrown out of the train car. Leland's going to have a dead body. Look down at this living girl who could possibly identify him and go... Man, <laughs> it's laughable. I mean, it just it again in the show. This moment haunted us because we only saw it in pieces. We saw the discovery of the train car. We read about certain things, an autopsy report, and we created a horrific image in our mind. Here, it is just goddamn ridiculous and and a real, real wrecking ball to what they built up in the show. It feels like you're getting a clip show. Like, again, we never saw any of this happening in the TV show, but we were told things about bite the bullet, baby. Like, we don't see that, but we see Jock, like, tie her arms up, and that's pretty horrific, like how she's crying because of the pain, like. Not as horrific as it was in our mind. In my mind, anyway. Yes. Actually, it's worse for me because I kind of figured she was down with the bondage with Jacques and Leo when she's screaming, Jacques, don't tie me up. And he does it anyway. It's like she was raped twice that night. I mean, uh, that's bad. It is bad. But what I'm saying is it was impactful on the TV show. Even though that was on ABC TV, those moments were more unsettling. And certainly the murder of Maddie Ferguson was more jolting than anything we're going to get in this death scene. This death scene is flat out bad. I'll agree. Yeah, the fact that an angel shows up to protect Renette. Is, oh. oh, that's so bad. That's so embarrassing. This whole night, it feels like a checklist. Like, it feels like Ingalls was sitting there with like a list. Like, okay, she's got to go on James's bike. And then she's got to jump off James's bike and scream, I love you, and run away. She's got to have sex with Jacques and Leo. Uh, Jacques and Leo got in a fight. Oh, we're going to make it Leland now? Hey, what about Leo's bloody shirt? Leo never gets a bloody shirt here. Ingalls fucked up on that one, but... 
<laughs> yeah, and you know what? I think he did get hit, so I presume he bled out. But even in a cut scene, she has asparagus for dinner because <laughs> that was something written in her fake diary. Oh, my gosh. They try, and yet there's things that are screwed up. I mean, she was also supposed to give Josie an English lesson, and the only thing they give Joan Chen to do is a cut scene with Pete selling two-by-fours to the guy who works at the savings and loan. Wait a second. Asparagus? Yeah, asparagus for dinner. I hate asparagus. Does this mean I'll never grow up? That's right. Does she have asparagus here? I thought it was. I don't remember seeing any asparagus in my gut. No, in a cutscene. In a cutscene. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, in a cutscene. <laughs> I would think she does that just so, like, she's extra stinky for Jacques. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. Nobody okay. fucks after asparagus. <laughs> One of the things that I'm paying attention to at the end here, besides what she had for dinner or didn't have for dinner, you know, there has been this worry. It seems like her biggest worry, more than what's going on with Bob slash Leland, is that Bob wants to be in her, that he wants to possess her. And we do get a shot in that train car. She looks in like a mirror, and you see Bob's face. And I'm wondering, does she get possessed for a moment before she is killed by Leland? And it happened once earlier. There's one scene where, like, she goes all gray face and black lipstick and goth. She looks a little Marilyn Manson. Yeah, she was talking to the shut-in at that time. It was Harold. Yeah, and she, like, goes all freaky when they're making out. I think he's on the verge of possessing her. I do. I, th I think that the death is her escape. That's what we learn in the diary when you read that book is... She would rather die than be possessed by Bob. So we should see this as some kind of Pyrrhic victory. This is what I'm wondering. Do they try to retcon something here? Because we're going to go into the Black Lodge. Leland's going to be hovering in the air. And he has a wound. Like, did Bob try to kill Leland so his body could jump? But then Bob's going to remove that wound so Leland can live. I, I do wonder, was there some kind of sacrifice by Leland when he was in his right mind for a moment so Bob would not get in his daughter? I wouldn't think so because I would think that that is the one active choice that Laura has to make for herself. That that if, if something were done for her, that just makes this struggle here even more unsatisfying. As it is... They're laying on opera and the angel and... And we cut to the little man. I mean, we're throwing in the kitchen sink here. It's just disappointing that, that Lynch, for all his creativity, couldn't see a struggle for salvation in terms uh, that weren't so cliched. I mean, this is just cliched BS stuff. There's a lot wrong with this. But I still think that there's some haunting imagery. I still find this entire thing disturbing because you got two girls helpless, tied up, screaming. You've got the thing I mentioned earlier. I never thought you knew it was me. And all of this is really impacting me until the angel shows up. And then I lose it. I Even that scene where Leland is like taking the girls in the train, they try to do the flashlight shot where he's doing that grimace. That grimace that is so terrifying when he kills Maddie, but he's like riding them like reindeer or something. It just looked goofy. I can honestly say nothing, none of the visuals worked for me in the last day of her life. That line about, I thought you knew it was me, was, I agree. That was a moment to ponder. 
and to linger on. Let me stick up for this angel man that shows up at the end because I'm usually the guy like when something goes so literal, it really turns me off. Yeah. But I feel like Lynch knows that. Like he's set this whole thing up with these silly angels and to so to have this angel at the end and I I do wonder is this a flash forward. I know time works different in the Black Lodge. When we saw Laura at the end of the TV series, she it was doppelganger Laura where she was evil. Here, she's happy to see this angel. I wonder, is this 25 years later and Coop has finally helped her to see the light? I Look, it's, it's so cheesy, but I do like when it just focuses on Laura's face and she goes from crying to laughing. It's that emotional outburst that Lynch always has in his films. I don't know. It's effective for me it works but shouldn't an angel who is arriving cut both of their ties and let them both escape yeah and i thought this was played by versions of themselves i thought that was ronette as an angel and laura as an angel but apparently they were different actresses and it was two different actresses it's i don't associate angels with the spirits that we see in the red room and in fact what i've always enjoyed about twin peaks nuttiness is that it sees evil and and good in very creative ways and here to go with a very literal totally christian view of what salvation would be just feels i don't know incredibly lazy and not in keeping with twin peaks whatsoever i agree and then you throw mike into the mix and this is really falling apart oh that is so awful i like that angels i mean we've always dealt with the black lodge the white lodge has to have something that it's an angel is incredibly cliche and i really think lynch could do better than that i mean i mean it could have been that monkey that we saw yes. eating some cream corn i guess yeah <laughs> well no the cream corn is the pain and suffering so only the evil people eat cream corn oh okay I thought that the monkey was David Bowie, though, because at one point it speaks and says, Judy. It actually speaks in his voice. That must have been a cutscene. I don't remember the monkey talking. No, no, it's it's there right at the end. It really does. He whispers it, but it's there. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear God, I do not remember a talking monkey, but... Yeah, it talks. And I'm not sure that it could bring salvation to Laura any better than these angels. I'm not sure that there's anything that can. I guess that's my point, is that they would like us to believe, like many Lynch endings, the Lady in the Radiator or Glinda the Good Witch, that a campy figure can bring some kind of genuine salvation to characters is a bridge too far at this point. I cannot buy it in a story that should be about harrowing sexual abuse. And then Leland puts the body in the water and goes to the Black Lodge. We go back to those sycamore trees and the red curtain and we get a shot of him with the black lipstick and the white face. He looks very glam rock and... He's going to go visit Mike, who is in the Red Room now. Did he just go there after leaving Ronette writhing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. That, that oof, Terrible. Uh, you know, the last moments, I just feel like, are a way of trying to say there's more to be uh, mysterious about. Let me give you some weirdness so that you're still asking questions, because I wouldn't want everything to be resolved. And yet this feels like a movie in which it was, everything we saw was a foregone conclusion and the way that, that we saw it was pretty stupid looking. But then we get this thing here, which is strange, where we finally find out what Garmin Bosia is, the pain and suffering, and the little man is demanding it from Bob. And the little man's going to eat the pain and suffering. It's like setting up some kind of weird power struggle 
over this and what Bob owes or something. The commerce of afterlife, yes. Yes. We all have to pass through the Black Lodge. It's mentioned in the show, and I guess we hopefully I'm worth my weight in cream corn. <laughs> I know that this has got plenty of corn. <laughs> so, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Fire Walk With Me? Jacob. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think of who this film is for to recommend it to. That I think that is the biggest problem, because if you've never watched Twin Peaks, good luck. Like, I want to talk to you after you watch this and see what that experience was like, because... <laughs> I can tell you, for the rest of the time that I knew my friend from Alabama, she would hop out of strange places and jump up and down and go, Black dog barks at night! Black dog barks at night! It became a point of, of laughter between us. She could probably do that to me now if I saw her. It's just, they thought it was absurd. I'd like to know the point of somebody who perhaps isn't quite so devoutly religious and maybe more in tune with exploitation films, who's never seen Twin Peaks yeah. and may not freak out just at the content. If we have a listener like that, please post on the message board. I want to know your experience. And so I, I can't recommend it to that group. If you're a big Twin Peaks fan, I I mean, I think we're all pretty big fans of that television show uh, to varying degrees. If you want continuity, either uh, something that wraps up that television series or just something that's a companion piece to it. There's continuity problems here. You're not going to get a resolution. It doesn't work on that level. Uh, the only group left is like, you're a fan of that show and you just want some weird, scary, surreal horror film about insects and sexual abuse. And maybe it works on that level. Not for me though. Like again, the, watching it the second time, I did come around to a lot of the imagery and I think, you know, yeah, Lynch and Lucas are, both jazz artists when it comes to filmmaking a lot of times i do think lynch is the better at improvising so i appreciate a lot of his imagery here i'll give him that compliment the the music uh, again when we're in that pink room i really dig that music there there's a vibe at times but putting this all together mashing up my cream corn into a big ball of muck this doesn't mash up well all these different parts in this film it just it doesn't go together well it it seems like a bunch of deleted scenes from the tv show and someone edited them did a fan edit and put it together as a movie i it's not compelling to find out that laura is pretty much what you thought of her just a, a a drug addict and a kind of a miserable person i just i i feel like that is the biggest disappointment is that i don't Still don't feel that Laura is a human being. She is still a corpse, even watching her last week in this film. So this is a not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, when I saw it initially, I just thought it was a very shrill, cruel, mean movie. I thought that basically Lynch made it out of spite. He wasn't thinking about fans. He was venting. ABC killed his series, and he was identifying Laura only in the way that he felt abused and tried to... To do that abuse to us. Well, it's not my fault that it got canceled. I watched every episode. I loved your show. And then you do this to me. What I have tried to do with this viewing is just totally detach the name Twin Peaks. Throw that away. This is a shitty Twin Peaks movie. It does not continue that series whatsoever. And if you've never seen the series, it's even worse. It's incoherent. What I hope to see when I watched it this time was Blue Velvet told from Dorothy Vallon's point of view. How does an innocent woman preserve herself when she's under the manipulations of a predator? How is she going to fight this Frank Booth? This time it's Bob and Laura. 
The difference is Blue Velvet felt authentic because of where it was coming from. It was about Oedipal complexes. It was about how to become a man. The story here feels phony. I take its portrayal of incest about as seriously as I take Mommy Dearest's portrayal of child abuse. I think that all the wacky surrealism makes Laurel's plight look silly. It does not enhance the horror in many cases. It just looks foolish and trivializes a very serious subject matter. I've seen good movies that straddle camp and horror. Requiem for a Dream, Breaking the Waves. I mean, there are films that can do it. This is no Elephant Man. This is a freak show with no empathy. And so the only thing that I can think is I am not a survivor of incest. I have not known people in this situation. Maybe the only audience for this are people that have gone through it and find in some way that the surrealism taps into the way that they feel. I don't know. I actually read online that some people say that, yes. I hope it's healing for somebody, but I know it's hurtful for me. This is David Lynch's worst film. I hope he never makes anything worse. And I certainly hope it's not reflective of what he's going to do in season three. That is the big fear, right? Lynch unleashed is what we have here. (laughs) The nice thing to know about season three of Twin Peaks, what's coming out on Showtime. Apparently, every episode is written by Mark Frost and directed and heavily influenced by David Lynch. Yeah. Oh, Frost being back on board makes me feel really good. He, They need to both be there. As for recommends... All right, I, I'm going to go with this movie, you know? First thing you've got to learn is to have a good attitude. That's the key. Anybody will tell you that. I'm going to have a good attitude when I start here. There's a lot of this movie I like. No, it's not a moving portrayal of incest so take that out of the equation and take this movie for what it is it is really trippy and i mean that like in the drug sense of the word when you go into a darkened room and i suggest if you watch this film do this go into a darkened room don't take your phone don't let anybody interrupt you turn off the lights crank up the sound watch this movie like you were in a theater and if you do that it certainly will set a mood. It will certainly, with its music and its imagery, both of those things combined are stronger than any bit of the script and the dialogue. The, the, the dialogue, the script, and some of the plotting that really hurts it. But there is a vibe here that moves me in similar ways as the best episodes of Twin Peaks. But... There's a lot of problems here, story problems, things that don't make sense, things that are outright silly, especially when the movie should be at its most dramatic. Having Mike and an angel running around during the murder of Laura Palmer undercuts what should be the most dramatic scenes there. The fact that it's a snuff film. I don't really feel like Laura is redeemed when this thing's over. I don't feel like she was a very active participant at all. I never saw her wanting to get out of hooking and wanting to get off drugs or do anything to save her own life. I feel like we watch a woman die and the movie kind of glorifies that. The problem is, do I recommend this? And it's hard because it's part of a mythos that's going to continue. And you said the jumping guy with the mask is going to come back. There's stuff here that I'm sure Garmin Bosia, I'll be surprised if we get through 18 hours of Showtime's Twin Peaks series and don't hear Garmin Bosia. I expect this stuff to come back. Chester Desmond isn't coming back. Ever, probably, but... (laughs) So it's better. Wouldn't that be the surprise guest? So because of that, it's almost tempting to recommend because... It does 
continue the story that is going to continue still. When we reviewed bad episodes of Twin Peaks, and there were some, we all said we got to keep plowing through because it's part of a bigger saga, and you can't just skip a few episodes, you'll be lost. And if you do watch this, I'm more inclined to recommend the Q2 cut that you can only get by going to the Black Lodge on the internet, but you're going to see so many more of the characters you liked in Twin Peaks, and you're going to see so much more fleshed out, and you're going to see more David Bowie. So I kind of feel like I'm recommending this film, but I'm still going to give it a red arrow because it's not a good film, and I don't like this film. So it's a red arrow, but it's kind of a recommend just because I like Twin Peaks so much, and I think that this is going to pay off later. Yeah, well, let me be clear. (laughs) I think that if you're a completist, you have to. I'm a completist. So yeah, I watched it. I may even watch it again before the series gets going when I get prepped for what's to come. I consider it part of canon, but I consider it the very worst episode. And again, I really hope it isn't the way that Lynch is going to direct the new series. And it could be. This may be telling, but I don't feel it's the worst episode of Twin Peaks. I agree. There is worse episodes than this. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll agree to disagree on that. It is funny to note, just on a moment of levity, uh, that Lynch did return. One year later, he did not make another chapter in this proposed trilogy. That may never happen. And the next ones, I remember you telling me at the time, I was pissed. You're like, I don't know where you got this, but so I'm quoting you. But you told me Lynch said if he did any more, he was going to go even further back in Laura Palmer's life. He was never going to pick up (laughs) after the series. (laughs) Well, he didn't bring Laura Palmer back, but he did bring back Agent Cooper and Shelley and so many people from the series for a very fun cash grab for Georgia canned coffee. Big in Japan, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me was a mega hit. I think the biggest grossing film of all time for a while until Titanic came out. And uh, they wanted to capitalize on that. So Lynch directed four episodes of a Japanese man named Ken coming to Twin Peaks, partnering with Dale Cooper and going to look for his missing girlfriend who's been sucked into the Black Lodge and at every given turn finding some delicious coffee in the form of a (laughs) canned brew named Georgia coffee. That sounds like it could be an actual episode. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things wrong with this. For example... Japanese people drinking canned coffee named after an American Southern state. Sure. Uh, You know what? I actually think that this is a pretty fun, creative little... It's a four-episode arc. It's on the internet. You can Google Twin Peaks Georgia Coffee. I'm sure it will pop up. I think one version is labeled Twin Peaks Sells Out. (laughs) Yes, that's what I watch. (laughs) And I love they bring back details. You went on in Now Peaking about the deer head being a symbol of who the killer is. They brought back the deer head. (laughs) They did. The snooker balls that remind them of cherry pie. It's almost like every time that they're getting a lead on the case it just makes them want to go eat the food and maybe that's (laughs) the way the japanese saw the tv show i don't know but it's actually for what it is let me put it this way i had a lot more laughs with that two minutes than i did in these two hours and apparently lynch did return to twin peaks the next year as well what i'm reading i can't find any official confirmation of this but all those log lady intros they did for bravo that are on the dvd set 
Yeah, apparently those were all written and directed by Lynch. Yeah, I've heard that as well, and I believe that. So yes, he was, I think he does. I think he considers that show, even though it got away from his own vision, as a part of his canon, something to take care of, and I think... Yeah, being able to take his friend Catherine Coulson and reintroduce those episodes and finding ways into talking about them through the Log Lady was a way of coming to peace with what went wrong with Twin Peaks. God knows Lynch was really at an all-time low in these years. We're going to talk about all that. Twin Peaks wasn't the only TV show he created for television, and there were bigger failures, and one of which is called Hotel Room. We're going to cover that quote-unquote movie next week here on Now Play. And this was really the end of Twin Peaks, right? This was the total end. Fans hoped for a revival. Lynch said, no, absolutely not. I found quotes. He's like, it's as dead as a doornail. Apparently doornails aren't as dead as I thought because... Well, they got <laughs> Josie popping out of them, maybe. <laughs> I think it's nostalgia, and I think time heals a lot of wounds. I gotta feel that a lot of the bridges that were burned. Julie Cruz talked on the special features about how enough time passed. She finally just called David Lynch and apologized, and now the two are good friends again. Her words, I'd, Lynch doesn't talk much, so... I don't know what he thinks. Yeah. Mark Frost, too. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, I feel mm -hmm. like so many people that drifted away were ready to come back for it. And it isn't just the cynicism of, oh, I need a hit. My bank account could use this. I genuinely believe that when these people talk about coming back in their enthusiasm, I don't know if the season will be good, but I think they want it to be. I think they're trying their hardest. Yeah, if anybody needed a paycheck, it would be Eric DeRay. Or as the font makes it look in Firewalk With Me, Eric Dare. I never realized his last name was Dare until I saw the font they use. Yes. But yeah, it is going to come back. I am really excited to see where it goes. Is it going to be as good as the pilot episode and the killer reveal episode of the original series, both directed by Lynch? Or is it going to be 18 hours of fire walk with me and angels and stupidity? Yeah, or maybe some combo of both. It would be too much to ask for anything better than what we've got. But if it can bring a satisfying close and answer some of the lingering questions and mysteries that season two left us with, it'll be enough for me. We got two months to find out. In the meantime, let's cover the rest of Lynch. Let's see what else he was doing. I know I'm excited to get to Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, there's Inland Empire. Don't forget, we're also doing the Fast and the Furious 8. Fate of the Furious. Sure, but we have to delay that a week. I know it's going to come out in a week when we're just not available to record, so you're going to get the straight story instead, instead of really fast cars. <laughs> you get a Disney film. <laughs> a guy on his riding lawnmower is going to captivate us with the slowest cross-country drive. So all that coming up at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And again, join us at NowPeakingPodcast.com. It's our spring donation drive, and it helps support the show, and you get a lot of hours of podcasts for $29.99. We have gone nearly an hour a show, or 45 minutes a show, on the original series of Twin Peaks, and then yes... For the season pass, you're going to get all the upcoming Showtime episodes, or you can just pick and choose at 99 cents an episode, all at nowpeakingpodcast.com. So Jacob, Stewart, thank you for joining me, and I don't know when I can come back. Maybe never.
Do you think that if you were falling in space, that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster? Faster and faster. And for a long time you wouldn't feel anything. Then you'd burst into fire. Forever. And the angels wouldn't help you. Because they've all gone away. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. And what's Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. What exactly did that mean? I'll explain it to you. And go to BooksAndNachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks. My secret diary. Her page is missing. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Why are you suddenly so interested in who I'm going to see at night? Nighttime is my time. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Where are you going? Nowhere fast, and you're not coming. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I really would like to talk to you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Football's empty. I'm looking for Santa Claus. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you telling me there's no Santa Claus? You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Say whatever you want. I know you love me, and I love you. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, I'm going to make myself a couple good morning in America. Y'all want something? Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. It's 3.30 in the morning. Where are we going to sleep? We're not. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He speaks to me. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. We're going to have problems with the local authorities. We're not going to be receptive to the FBI. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. God damn, these people are confusing. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. Quit trying to hold on so tight. See you later.
am the arm. And I sound like this. My curiosity has always been, was there a better movie in there and it got cut out? I do feel like... It's a plane if you can't hear. Okay, I was like, I thought you were giving me a suspense. <laughs> and I would argue, I don't have to like a movie to find it intriguing. I think there are many interesting disasters. There's plenty of movies I would happily watch again, knowing they're not good movies. <laughs> You're going to have to do that with Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, it's been 27 years, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling that anymore. Yeah, and the lady died in the shower in Psycho. I mean, duh. Rosebud's a sled, people. I got some guff on Twitter. Somebody, I retweeted Showtime when they said, father, lawyer, murderer. And they're like, is that a spoiler? I'm like, it's been 27 years. <laughs> and we already revealed it on Now Peaking. Get over it. <laughs> Supposedly, David Lynch lived here for the last two years. We don't actually see him interacting. What we see... David Lynch think, lived here? Ah, oh, David Bowie. 